Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. Joined, as always, on Fight fight Night Weeks by my guy, John. You guys can follow him at MMA Fox on Twitter. And we are here propping you up for UFC Columbus, headlined by a heavyweight fight between Curtis Blades and Chris Dacus. This is the last event of an eight-week stretch for the UFC. The next week, we get a kind of uh, a little bit of a week off, and then we're right back at it for the big UFC 273. But, John, what's been your, you know, your your level of, I guess, energy over the last eight weeks? Right, like uh, we do this week in, week out content every single week. How are you feeling now at the the back end of this eight-week stretch? Well, you know, at the front end of the eight-week stretch, things were going pretty well. Uh, I'm still still holding a slight profit for the year right now, but you know, after the last couple of weeks, uh, I, I'll be honest, I'm I'm ready for I'm ready for a week off to recharge the batteries a bit. But I do like this card. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll be homeless at the end of it because I do have a couple <laughs> big plays on it. But you know, I, I do think it's a good card for betting. And honestly, if you look at the cards we've had this year it's probably the maybe the second best fight night card top to bottom in terms of an entertainment perspective i think you know we've had some bad ones this year oh you, you know I'm, I'm trying to remember the one where we had like a horrible main event that i can't get off the top of my head right now but uh yeah there was there was some really bad fight night cards but this one's not that bad there's there's been a couple fight night cards now that we've had in a row that are actually pretty good from top to bottom they have very very fun fights very much looking forward yeah. to it. Uh, but again, now we got the crowd as well here in Columbus. Hopefully they're able to fuel a, a little bit more energy into the arena and we can get uh, a live crowd, a live uh, environment. So very much looking forward to that. Uh, as I, you know, something I want to do for all these prop shows that we're doing now uh, is just get your uh, perspective from a fan's perspective, right? What What is the fight that you're most excited about from a fan's perspective on this card? Well, certainly not the main event. That's for sure, right? <laughs> I, it, it's kind of weird because it's like there's a couple interesting ones. Like from a, I think, high-level skill perspective, you know, the best fight on this card is probably early. It's Nikolau and Dvorak, I think. Yes. It's not even close. But I also think that kind of has the potential to be boring if the fight goes kind of how I think it will. Um, something I think is pretty interesting, uh, Jacasey and Borshev should be – should be fire because Borshev's not going to give you a low output fight. He's going to go in there and get after it. So that's probably aesthetically the best fight to me that stands out, you know, before the card starts. For me, uh, it definitely got to be the Dvorak and Nikolau card. I'm surprised it's buried that deep, uh, especially considering yeah. we have two top 10 flyweights going at it as well. Both guys on a bit of a streak. Um, the the Matt Brown and Baran Barberena fight, that's just more so of a, a bloodthirsty fan perspective where I feel as though we're going to get some violence in that fight. So I'm looking forward to that. But I got to say, Askar Askarov and Kai Kara France, easily number one contender fight there i i get it it looks like a squash match based on the odds but it should still be a fun fight and hopefully we get to see askarov tested a little bit but uh, obviously we'll break down that fight continue i mean is it a number one contender fight or are brandon moreno and davison figueredo just gonna fight for the next decade i don't <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knows? Could you imagine a moreno figueredo seven or some shit like that <laughs> it's insane 
yeah exactly uh no uh let, let's get right into this card then we got a ton to get through here i got uh we got 13 fights lined up first and foremost we got luis saldana taking on bruno souza in terms of odds we're currently looking at minus 120 for souza plus 100 for saldana line is all over the place actually if you look at multiple places it's pretty much an even line throughout yeah. so that's how we'll take it here uh interesting fight luis saldana obviously coming off that loss to austin lingo back in august uh looked very good in that first round then his productivity really start to fall off after that first round uh same thing happened in the jordan griffin fight even though he got his hand raised in that fight i don't think he deserved that win but judges did so uh jordan griffin is now out of the ufc because of that loss and obviously the uh, the losses that he had before that so very unfortunate when guys get get cut off of a, a very controversial decision but saldana when he's good he gets his combinations going his kicking game going he manages his distance pretty well uh and there are fights where his cardio looks good over 15 minutes right it's just these fights where he's going up against guys that are putting the pressure on him uh, jordan griffin puts a relentless grappling pressure on you austin lingo puts a relentless like forward pressure type of style on you and uh here with bruno Souza, like he's not really getting that He's getting a guy that's willing to accept the back foot, willing to allow the other fighter to kind of fight at their pace. And I'm interested to see if that's going to allow uh, Saldana to go the full 15 minutes if he needs to here. I do lean the Saldana side just because optically speaking, it's going to look great for the judges with him kind of moving forward and throwing his combinations. Interestingly enough, I believe they share some of the same coaches. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Luis Saldana and a former opponent of Bruno Souza and Kamala Kirk. Santiago DeFranco, I believe, cornered both guys or has at least coached both guys. So I'm interested to see what he took from that Souza fight and how he's going to apply it here with Saldana. I feel the difference is <clears throat> Kirk was just not throwing enough. Even though he was the one kind of moving forward the entire time, Souza was the one getting off a little bit more. And if Saldana can kind of uptick that that uh, that volume a little bit more, he could end up getting the, the the decision victory here as well. So a couple of spots that I do like here: the fight goes to decision, yeah, minus two hundred. A little bit chalky, but I feel as though given the pace that these guys will likely throw, uh, you know, I, I think it goes over, you know, that two and a half, and ultimately that fifty minute mark, uh, and then. It's just about picking a side. Who do you think is going to get the judge's decision? I'm going to lean with the Saldana side, which currently sits at plus 175. Uh, again, optically, it's just going to look much better being the guy moving forward and hopefully throwing enough shots that the judges will see it his way. Are you seeing this fight any differently? How do you see this one going down? Um, Well, I think goes the distance is actually a pretty good number, even at the chalk, to be honest. like yeah. I, I personally don't. I know he had a bunch of finishes regionally at Saldana. I don't personally think, though, he kind of has power that translates over the UFC level, to be completely honest. Um, and on the other side, I think Souza, you know, the big issue with Souza and why I didn't bet him in this fight uh, on the money line is just like he provide he possesses like really no threats, if that makes sense. Like he's not really, you know, Bruno Souza's ideal game is really to kind of play the back foot, move around, and just try to point you. You know, he's not a big hitter. Um, he's not a high volume guy. He's not really a big wrestler. Um, and so, I mean, I like goes the distance quite a bit here. In terms of the fight, it, it's just, it's weird because like Souza, you know, I, I can see the angle on Saldana. The problem for me is it's like, I, I just rate, you know, Kirk and like Melsic so much higher than Saldana. And he met, like Souza's the kind of guy that unless you're going to grapple him bad, like Mike Hamill did, he's not going to ever really lose striking fights like badly uh, and he's not going to ever win them like dominate them you know he just kind of has a style that's going to suppress volume to an absurd degree and make it a technical fight uh and i don't really know what to make of saldana in that look he looked good against austin lingo 
But Lingo kind of a stationary linear target, whereas Saldana is not. Like, I don't think, or whereas Souza is not, I should say. I don't think Saldana is going to come out here and land, spam 10 spinning kicks in a row here. Like he was able to do to Lingo, you know. I think if he tries to do that and throw all that, like, fancy stuff he was throwing there, he's just going to be hitting air a lot. Um, but on the other side of things, it's like, I, I do think, you know, while I kind of think Souza has the opportunity to outland him, it's like Souza is so unimpactful with his shots. And I think Saldana has a much more, much more of a chance to damage him. My big question is just like, you know, Melsic fought a very, very intelligent game plan against Souza. He just basically stood back and just kicked him in the legs when he moved and basically was able to do that to a decision. I'm not really convinced that Souza has got, or that Saldana has got the discipline to do that. Uh, so I, I mean, I shouldn't say I favor Souza. I think the line's more or less right, to be honest. It's like Saldana's going to have bigger shots, but I think Souza's game can make him miss a lot here. So I, I love goes the distance. If I was taking a side, though, I would probably take Souza by decision. I like it. I like it. All right, let's move this along here. Next up, we got the fight we were talking about at the top of the show. Uh, big flyweight scrap here buried on the prelims. David Dvorak going up against Matthias Nikolaou. Oh, we got now minus 120-ish I'm seeing on David Dvorak and plus 105 the return or plus 100 the return on Matthias Nikolaou. Uh, a ton of money coming in on Nikolaou over the last couple of days because Dvorak was a pretty solid favorite. I was seeing guys uh, pull the trigger at like minus 135, minus 140, and now I'm sure they're kicking themselves with seeing that money come in on the Nikolaou side, giving them a better price on Dvorak. <clears throat> I've been big on Nikolaou in the past, right? That's a guy that I've uh, backed as my lock, and then I play against Tim Elliott, made that weight closer than it should have been. Shout out to James Cross for Tim Elliott to, to, for telling Tim Elliott that he was up two rounds going into that third. Uh, and I think that's kind of why we saw Tim Elliott just cruise and not really fight too much off of his back to get back to his feet in that third round. But uh, Nikolaou, when he's on, you know, solid power, good combinations in his striking. His jiu-jitsu game is obviously uh, one of the best in that division as well. But I, I feel like he just leaves a little bit to be desired at times, man. He hasn't really reached that potential that we had for him even coming back into the UFC, right? It's weird that he had that, uh, that he got cut after that Dustin Ortiz fight, which was his only loss, if I'm not mistaken, inside the UFC at that point. Goes out there, gets one or two more wins, and then gets signed back to the UFC. He has potential, but he hasn't really been showing it, right? There's an argument that Manel Kopp actually won that fight in his return to the UFC. Uh, David Dvorak, on the other hand, you know, outside of Bruno Silva, obviously he's fighting, you know, somewhat lower level guys in Jordan Espinosa and Juan Carlos Randeros. But uh, the Bruno Silva fight was impressive, right? Now we're starting to see that Bruno Silva is like a, a solid flyweight. He's a legit top 10 to top 12 flyweight at this point in time. He can go out there and put it together pretty well himself. And Dvorak, you know, pretty much stifled him for the majority of that fight. He has good combinations, good power, good footwork, but he's not he's not overextending on a lot, which is great because he's just waiting for the opportunity to counter his opponents, right? And when he does, he more often than not is having the last shot in a lot of these exchanges and these combinations. His, his grappling and his wrestling seems to be on point as well, but we're going to get a lot of questions answered here, especially against a high-level guy like Matthias Nikolaou. This is easily the toughest fight that we're going to see uh, David Dvorak go out there and uh, have. I, I am picking the Dvorak side. I'd be surprised if he actually finishes Nikolaou, so I'd be taking Dvorak via decision, which currently sits at plus 140. But this is another spot where the chalk on the fight goes to decision. May not be too bad of an idea at minus 200. Maybe even parlay the first two fights to go to a decision, and you get a nice little ticket there. Uh, I, I do like the Dvorak side. I was considering playing him on the money line, but 
one th- one part of my game that I've really been struggling with is the slight favorite range. And seeing Dvorak be in that slight favorite range just kind of scares me off at this point in time. Again, every fight is different. Every fight is a completely different puzzle. But I've been finding over time, slight favorites, I've just been shit in the bed way too much, which is why I'll ultimately stay off of him here. Uh, but I'm still going to pick him to win. Maybe take a small uh, stab with a parlay on that if I go to decision, though. But I got Dvorak, Dvorak by decision. Uh, yeah, and hopefully the stamps is a rival and a lot of people start taking notice of this guy, especially against uh, uh, getting a win against a guy like Nikolau. How do you see this one going down? Yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, my first couple years betting, you know, three, four years ago, slight favorites was probably the best range that I was best in. But you're right, the last year or so, I've just gotten dumpstered in that range. And actually, if you kind of look at, like, historic records, um, that's minus 125 to minus 185 is, like, the most minus EV place there is. Yeah. Um, shout, out is- to, uh, shout out to Bet Tips. That yeah. has a great statistic on that. Like, across the board – the slight favorite is the least profitable. Actually, it's the the most loss that anybody ever takes. Is which in the slight which isn't to range. say there aren't slight favorites with value, right? Of course, but it's no, like, no, of course. Yeah. I, I feel like that's where it's like a knife's edge where a lot of those fights, there's some questions. And if one's wrong, you know, you get dumpstered on it. Um, so it's interesting. This fight is really interesting, to be <laughs> honest. Um, you know, you touched on some important points here. Uh, the problem with me, so like I thought I was going to play Nikolau pretty big before I taped it. Uh, and then I went into tape and like, I kind of came out feeling the other way on it. Um, not that I was going to play Dvorak big, but that I leaned him to think, you know, I kind of think it's a bit of a mirror match. You know, it, it, both guys like to counter a lot. Neither guy really looks their best when they're the ones, you know, initiating striking exchanges. And, and as such, it's like, I kind of think it's going to be, there's the potential for a lot of staring. What leads me to lean the Dvorak side of things is just like, I love Nikolau. I love his game. I bet him against Kopp. Um, I'm a huge fan of what he's doing, at, but he is willing to accept the back foot, right? And so if you're going to have a long, uh, a low-volume fight and Dvorak is going to be the guy that's in the center and he's going to be on the back foot, it's optically not great for him, on top of which I do think uh, Dvorak's low-kick game is a bit better than Nikolau's. You know, I think he will be able to get off on those kicks here, which I think could be the difference. So I lean Dvorak, but with that said, like, you mentioned it. You know, this is the best fighter that Dvorak's fought by a lot. You know, I, Nikolau, I think, has always had some issues with athleticism. Like, I don't think he's the best athlete, but skill-wise, he's he's remarkably skilled. And, like, if I bet Dvorak as a favorite here and he comes out and just turns out Nikolau has him biting on feints and lights him up for 15 minutes, I will feel like absolute shit just because it's like, <laughs> okay, he took a huge step up against a guy who's been fighting top-level competition. Like, why would you lay juice there, you know, you know? Um, so I'm passing the fight from a money line. Um, something that's pretty odd about the lines here is like I'm seeing Nikolaou is being lined more likely to finish than Dvorak is and less likely mm-hmm. to win a decision, which to me is kind of strange. Like I, I know Nikolaou had that fight with Smolka all those years ago where he dropped him three times, but I, I don't think Nikolaou's really a huge hitter, to be honest. I, I think Dvorak's likely the harder hitter. Um, that just is weird to me. Like I, So like I'm looking at these props and it's like, Dvorak decision is plus 140 and Nikolau is plus 250. Um, I kind of like the Nikolau decision here, to be honest. Plus 250 is not bad. That's actually a really good price, especially because I don't really think, unless it turns out he can just grapple him to death and sub him, I don't think a finish is likely. And like Bruno is a pretty good grappler and Dvorak did fine getting up there. So yeah, I, I like Nikolau decision a good bit. 
Interesting. Uh, again, it's a, it's a big step up. It's a it's a prove it to me spot for Dvorak as well, right? I'd rather be more comfortable playing him as an underdog in this spot rather than at, at slight favorite yeah. odds. We'll see uh, how that line starts to shake out, especially considering where it's trending right now. But uh, yeah, no, very interesting fight. I'm glad that we got both sides of the coin here as well. All right, let's go on to the next fight. Another prove it to me spot for some people, but Manuel Fido coming in at that heavy chalk of minus 415, the return on Jennifer Maya plus 315. I was hoping that I could have my sneaky women's MMA cap on here and take that Jennifer Maya side. But man, after running the tape, it's just not there. I just don't think she has it to go out there and actually give Fido much issues here. Um, obviously uh, a gift of a line that we got in Jennifer Maya's last fight where we got Catelyn uh, Chikagi at minus 175 because all of a sudden, you know, Jennifer Maya goes out there and gets one takedown against Valentina Shevchenko, and now she's going to be able to do the same thing to Catelyn Chikagian. I, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen, and that's exactly what happened that night with Chikagian. I I believe this fight will play out similar to the Chikagian fight, honestly, but if not, more brutal and more uh, more vicious on the Firo side who throws with absolute heat in her combinations. And it's not like she's trying to, like, take your head off with a lot of these combinations, but there's a lot of power behind every single strike that she throws out there. She does a good job in terms of getting in and out with her combinations. Uh, you know, she she manages range pretty well from what I've been seeing, and she does a good job in terms of always staying balanced with her striking as well. And what I mean by that is she brings her feet with her inside the pocket, lets her strikes go, and then it brings her feet out with her rather than kind of just falling over her punches. Uh, and that kind of helps in terms of, you know, telegraphing any takedowns that might be coming her way as well. Uh, I, I think, like, we see it in a couple of her fights where she she sees the possible threat of a level change of her opponent and she's able to kind of hold him off and, and push him back. Uh, obviously, she hasn't faced somebody like Jennifer Maya before. Obviously, Tabitha Ricci uh, is a much smaller opponent. Uh, Myra Bueno Silva didn't even shoot for a takedown. So there are still question marks about that. But nothing Jennifer Maya does in terms of the wrestling and grappling makes me believe she's going to go out there and put Manuel Firo to the ringer. I don't I don't think that at all. Um, I think that Firo will be touching her up for the majority of this fight, and I wouldn't be surprised if she actually ends up finishing her. I do think that she could find that knockout blow, you know, with an accumulation of strikes. Um, the the longer that this fight goes, probably even round three, as the the as it starts to pile up. Firo is a big woman for this division as well, right? I think she stands at five foot seven compared to the five foot four that we're going to be getting for Jennifer Maya, and she uses that height advantage very well as uh, in, in two in terms of getting in, in and out with her strikes and letting those combinations go using the sidekick as well to kind of maintain her range and her distance, which is something that I very much enjoy watching as well. But I, I, I do think this Firo chick, she will find herself in its auto fight within the next year or so, especially if you continue, if she continues on this range, you don't think so. I right? don't worry. Well, I'll give, you your turn here. I'll give you your turn here. I do think obviously like, she at 125, the only real big wrestling threat that I can think of off the top of my head is Top Tiana Suarez, but she's not fighting anytime soon, right? There's nobody else that really comes to mind off the top of my head, at least, that will give her a big grappling, uh, you know, uh, issue or something like that. But yeah, Firo, Firo inside the distance is kind of what I'm leaning at, which is at plus 195. Even Firo straight up by KO at plus 225, not too bad of a uh, thing either. I might be, you know, over-exaggerating her power a little bit here, but I think considering how her speed advantage and how effective I think she will be with striking and landing on Jennifer Maya. I think it's just a matter of time before Maya wills under that uh, that that power and that pressure and eventually gets out of there. So uh, give me Firo Firo inside the distance. Please lay it on me. What, what do you got on the Jennifer Maya? Side? I, I'll be honest. I, I, I'm going. I'm not going to go quite as hard as the take I gave on my show last night, but I'll say something maybe a bit more controversial here. 
I, I think Fioro's Fioro's a fraud, to be honest with you. I, I, I really, really think she is like I, I think she looks like a good striker because she hasn't really faced any adversity. You know, she hasn't had like but you know, you watch when girls have thrown strikes back at her, she does not have very good defense at all. You know, Victoria Leonardo briefly stunned her. You watched at the end of the Myra Buena Silva second round. Silva got mad and started letting her hands go and touched her up in the last like 30 seconds to a minute of that round. The problem is Myra Buena Silva just kind of sits there and lets people do what she wants. And it's like, so Fiora looked good there, but like Marina Morose outperformed what Fiora did to Myra Buena Silva in terms of output, in terms of percentage she landed. Um, no one's talking about Marina Morose as potentially being a champion one day, you know, uh, but that happened. Um, Fiora was minus 150 against Victoria Leonardo. Her, so her victories are Leonardo, Tabitha Ricci, and Myra Buenasova, who's not even ranked. You know, she hasn't faced resistance across her entire regional career outside of her first fight in MMA, where she lost to Leah McCourt. <clears throat> and now she's being treated as if, like, to line Menon Fioro as a minus 500 against Jennifer Maya, you basically have to be implying that she's one B in the division behind Valentina. And I, and I just don't really even see how you can almost get there, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> like uh, maybe I'm completely off base here, but it's like beating up a uh, baby shark at 115 on a week's notice. Doesn't tell me a whole lot. Beating up Victoria Leonardo, who is not UFC level. doesn't tell me a whole lot. Look, she looked good against Silva, but again, you know, Myra basically, the only thing she has going for her is insane durability and she hits hard, but she has no output. It's very easy to get off on her, especially if you're in and out. Um, on the other side, you have Jennifer Maya. And like, am I going big on Maya? No, because look, if you told me for a fact that Maya was going to come out here and grapple her, I'd actually be pretty passionate about her. But we have just way too much of a sample of Jennifer Maya refusing to grapple. You know, that's just kind of what, she, for whatever reason, the Valentina fight, she decided she was going to do it and actually had moderate success in that fight doing it. But she just hasn't done it to anybody else. Didn't really try to do it to Chuke in either fight, you know. And so with that being the case, it's like it's a striking fight. And it's like, can I favor Maya in that kind of fight? No, I can't. But, you know, I, it's not like Maya is getting dumpstered by anybody striking. She got beaten up by Catelyn Chukagian and Valentina at distance. Like, I would rank, I think Chukagian as a kickboxer is probably top three to four pound for pound in the UFC, you know, in terms of her kickboxing. So it's like, I can't really put too much stock in either of those performances. She just beat Jessica I, whether you think she won or not, is a different story in a kickboxing match. Uh, pretty much every fighter that Maya has fought would be minus 300 against everybody Fioro's fought in the UFC. So it's like, this is a huge, huge step up in levels. I favor on the feet but i do think maya is like i don't think she's in any danger of getting outlanded like 100 to 30 here even as it is in the last fight with chukagian she really outlanded by 18 strikes i actually kind of expecting it to be reasonably close like the only issue is maya is a bit of a plotter but i don't think she's a plotter on the level that silva is and so i don't think this line could possibly be minus 500 i think that is insane i think going past minus 250 is a little insane if you want to say that you know maya doesn't wrestle and Faro is minus 250. Okay, that's fine. But past that, I don't understand how you can get there. Honestly, I, I just don't. And look, the bottom line is if, you know, Maya comes out and grapples aggressively like she did against Valentina, she can't take her down and submit her here. 
I mean, she got eight minutes of control time against Valentina Shevchenko. She took her down and held her down for a round, but she can't do that to Manon Faro? Like, that seems extremely unlikely to me. I don't know. I really think Faro's defense is pretty suspect and that everybody's going to find out once she fights somebody that fights back. Uh, so I'm betting Maya here. Uh, in terms of props, I guess what I like most is goes the distance. I don't really think Maya is very likely to sub her unless she really, really goes for it. Um, though the sub line of plus 1,800 isn't bad. But honestly, minus 200 to trust Jennifer Maya's durability, which held up against Shevchenko and Chikagin, I'm pretty happy to do that. I always love the passionate takes on the big dogs for my guy, John, here. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm not seeing it. I think it's going to be a, a little bit actually it's it's going to seem pretty clear to me on the feet here with Firo landing the more significant strikes getting in and out of the pocket the way that she does i, I guess uh, yeah i guess my question for you and it's like it's been my question all week and no one has really like been able to answer it for me is it's like there's kind of an assumption being made that like Faro is an elite striker but what is it being based off of like hitting her beating up Leonardo and baby shark? Well, I mean, a lot of fighters, if they hit pads, they're going to look like elite strikers, you know, um, there, there's really no data, you know, <laughs> you saying that Leonardo and Ricci were, were pads. <laughs> I, 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 kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Ricci's a small one fifteener, you know, yeah. um, who had five fights. I, I, I just like, we don't even know what it looks like when someone hits back at her. Like, look at the girl she was fighting in UAE. They were so bad, you know? Yeah. Like, this is just such a huge step up here, you know? Uh, you you have a point in terms of the, the level of competition she's been going up against compared to what she's going to get with Jennifer Maya. But again, it's how big of a step up is it with Jennifer Maya? I don't think she's this crazy, you know, fighter in her own right. She's going, you know, close with uh, Jessica I. You could obviously give that fight to Jessica I as well. But Manol Firo seems to fight with a little bit more uh, conviction with her striking, right? She goes out there and she tries to put stamps on her combination. I think that's going to be kind of the difference here, whereas Jennifer Maya might be just landing a couple pitter-patter shots from the outside. It's going to look more impressive from the Firo side, in my opinion. At least that's why I think pre-fight, we'll see those combinations landing a little harder and having way more sway with the judges compared to what Jennifer Maya is going to be doing. I would love to see Jennifer Maya go out there and grapple. Because I want to see that part of Firo's. <laughs> I want to see Firo's uh, grappling tested against somebody that has shown, okay, a little bit of uh, you know grappling success against the best in the division at this point in time, albeit for two minutes of a fight. But still, we need to see it tested. And maybe Jennifer Maya can test her. What I will say, like one last thing is like, I, like I said, I'm not going big on Maya. It's going to be very small. Um, especially because if she beats Jennifer Maya, she's probably going to be ranked number two in the division and you're going to get a chance to fade her with someone who's really good next in all likelihood. So yeah, that's my take anyway. We'll see yeah. what happens. Also, I didn't say she was going to be champion by next year. I said she'll be fighting for a title by next year. Whether she wins or not is a completely different situation and we'll we'll get that get to that conversation if she ever finds herself in that spot. But given the lack of competition that Valentina has to deal with in this division, I could see her getting a title shot within a year's time yeah. if she racks up a, another win or two, right? Yeah, that, yeah, I I mean that, that that's the question. Will she rack up another win or two? We'll see. Exactly. All right. Let's move on to the next fight. We spent way too much time on the fucking women's flyweight fight, but it is what it is. Next up, we got Alias Cobb, Kizriev going up against Dennis Tululian. Uh, in terms of odds, we currently have minus 1,000 now on Alias Cobb, Kizriev, and plus 700 the return on Dennis Tululian. Man, 
second fight at middleweight for Kizriev, and he's going up against a tall, big 185-er. I'm interested to see how he deals with trying to grapple a guy that much bigger than him, right? It, it wasn't, you know, it was like five years ago that we saw grainy footage of this guy on the regional scene looking like a stick figure, and all of a sudden he's putting all this crazy weight on over the last several years, and now all of a sudden he's a 185-er, right? I don't have, like, if you got in at minus 240, minus 250, whatever it was earlier, props to you. But now it's getting into the crazy range, even over minus 600. I think it's getting a little crazy at this point, uh, considering we haven't seen him flesh out completely at middleweight yet. Uh, he fought that Shigomoto guy on the on the contender series. That guy didn't even look like a 185 uh himself. Now, I'm not saying that Dennis is going to go out there and beat this guy or knock him out or anything like that. He has a very abysmal record, 10-5, and five, only two wins over guys with winning records. Uh, but I believe it's been about a year and a half to two years now that he's been over there at Extreme Couture with you know training partners like Sean Strickland, Magomed yeah. on Kalaev when he comes into town, a lot of those other guys that he has training at Extreme Couture. And he's even cornering some of these guys with those coaching staff. So he's really ingrained himself in the culture of that gym over there. And I'm interested to see if he can show any signs of uh, grappling defense. Because if he can keep this fight on the feet, he could have a competitive fight here against a guy whose bread and butter seems to be the, uh, the ground game and the grappling game. That's where my question is, is how he deals with that size. Now, in women's MMA, it's more important for the size, right? That's where we can make the case for guys, for women like uh, Luana Carolina over Lupita Godinez or uh, Jasmine Jazdovicious against Kay Hansen, like those types of fights. It's not as, you know, prominent in the men's MMA side of things, but it's still interesting to see how this one's going to pan out. We got 5'9", Kizriev going up against 6'1", Dennis Tuluden, who has a decent uh striking game right he's been able to put some guys out again level of uh striking uh, or sorry level of competition not the greatest either that's something that we need to uh, uh address obviously here but Kizriev should go out there should be able to get this done my question is i don't think it's going to be as quick as the odds are making it indicate in terms of the over under the under one and a half is minus 190 right now that's fucking crazy in my opinion right sure he yeah. could go out there and just absolutely flatline this guy immediately but i think he might struggle to get this fight to the ground more often than uh, people are expecting him to uh it, it was two fights ago that dennis fought ikram uh i can't remember his last name but it took him two and a half rounds to finally assert that top dominance and get that kimura finish is kizriev going to be able to go out there and assert that dominance right off the bat or is it going to take him a while as well so maybe a, a flyer on the over one and a half at plus 155, plus 160 is not too bad of a, a shot here. I do think that Kizriev still wins, but even Kizriev by decision at plus 500, <laughs> that's a crazy line here, especially if you can't get yeah. Dennis out of there. We got to believe that Dennis is improving his game ever so slightly as well, and that might be enough to make allow him to survive the first uh, seven and a half minutes or so, or even the full 15 minutes. So I don't have a huge passionate take on either side here in terms of a, a prop. Like I said, maybe a flyer on the over one and a half. His review decision plus 600 or even a Tululian by KO if he manages to catch him with the knee on the way in or something like that. Plus 600. Not too bad either, but yeah, I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not laying the chalk here on Kizriev. I'm not putting him into any parlays, especially at this line. Uh, I will act as if this fight's not even on the card when I'm putting my uh, lottery tickets and stuff together. Uh, am I talking crazy? Am I the crazy one now for trying to make a case that Dennis is not going to die as quickly as odds indicate, or or do you see it as well? Well, like. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Like I don't really rate Dennis Lillian like that really that much. Like I Kizrim shouldn't have much trouble here. Like looking at the money line, it's kind of hilarious that a UFC debutante is minus a thousand. But like 
I don't know. Do I really want to bet, you know, to Lulun? Like I, he, I have no real data to suggest that he's much better than what the lines yeah. indicate. You know, we were supposed to get Dawkins against Kizriev and I actually had some interest in Dawkins there. Uh, I think Kizriev is good, but I also think he's kind of being treated as like, the 185 pound version of like Islam or Habib. And I just don't really think that's true, to be honest. You know, he's good, but is he future title contender? I think he's got a lot to prove. Uh, you know, even looking at the props here though, it's like, like you said, minus 800 doesn't go the distance. Like that seems that is pretty nuts. extreme for me. <laughs> like Dennis has only been finished in the first round twice in his career. Like, do I expect him to survive the whole fight? Probably not. Uh, and I do think once Kiz gets on top of him, it probably goes downhill in a hurry. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of tempted to just poke the GTD at plus 500 just because, like, can it really be minus 800 in a UFC middleweight fight? You know, <laughs> like, that seems, that seems not, you know, that seems not even heavyweight fights. You know, we just had Francis Ngannou win a five-round decision. Weird stuff happens in MMA, usually at a better than plus 500, you know, clip. Um, but yeah, I mean, Kizriev should roll here. I honestly, after taping it, I probably would have laid the minus three fifty if I got in there, but it was already at like minus eight hundred at that point. Um, I guess what I would probably play is the over one and a half, just kind of take a small flyer on you know the fight not ending quickly. Like, cause I'm kind of with you. Like, most of the guys Kizriev has fought, and even on contenders, have just haven't really been very skilled guys. So he's tearing through guys who aren't providing resistance. Can Dennis provide resistance? I don't know, but I think he's a better shot to provide resistance than most of the guys because we have his fought and finished early. So maybe the over, maybe it starts round two, minus 104, but it's like, I don't know. I, I don't really feel passionately about it. Like, because we have minus 1,000 for a reason. I'm not going to have my money anywhere near this fight. Yeah, again, it's all going to come down to, well, whether uh, Dennis is going to be able to survive that early onslaught or not. Uh, obviously, uh, Ali Eskav has a, a bunch of first-round finishes on his record. Obviously, most noticeable... No Sorry, most notably, uh, the contender series fight uh, two years ago at this point in time uh, against Henrique uh, Shikumoto, where he finished him in 50 seconds. Before that, obviously, beats the piss out of Rusamar Parlaris, who keeps going for that leg lock, as he always does. Uh, before that, gets a body punch knockout to Matej Truhen, uh, who was 11-6 and six at the time. And then before that, all the all the round one finishes he's getting is against guys that have five or fewer uh, MMA fights maybe even O and O guys as well. So we'll see how much resistance Dennis can actually provide and if his time over there at uh, Extreme Couture is actually benefiting him or not. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. <clears throat> Excuse me. We got, uh, what is it? Uh, Dana Batkadil or Batkadil Dana, I believe he wants to go by now, uh, going up against Chris Gutierrez. In terms of odds, we got minus 130 on the Batkadil side and plus 110 on the Chris Gutierrez side. Uh, I, I'm a I'm a fanboy for guys that go out there and uh, utilize the half kick as uh, dominantly as Chris Gutierrez has been able to. Mark D. Casey used to do it pretty well as well uh, up until he ran into Rafael Faziev. And that's kind of where I see uh, not crazy similarities, but we have a guy in Denat Bakriel who has a really good striking game, really good kickboxing game. And if anything, he might be able to provide some uh, resistance to that calf-kicking game of Chris Gutierrez. Now, if we take away the uh, calf-kicking game of Chris, what are we left with? In my opinion, we're left with the guy that likes to be on his back foot, doesn't throw a crazy amount of volume, especially if he's not able to immobilize his opponent with that calf-kicking game. His grappling needs work, in my opinion, still. And then on the flip side with Dana, I feel as though we're not getting... 
uh, we don't really have the full picture on this guy because he's going out there and just starching these dudes within the first round, right? Brandon Davis, uh, Guido Canetti, Kevin Natividad. I'm sure Chris would go out there and absolutely starch those guys as well. Yes. But I'd like to see this fight go the full 50 minutes and see how it goes, especially if Pat Carrillo is able to kind of nullify the kicking game of Gutierrez. He's We know that Gutierrez will more than likely accept the back foot. So Dana will more than likely be the one on the front foot, uh, landing his combinations, landing his strikes. I don't think he knocks out Chris here because uh, Chris hasn't been knocked out in his career at all. Seems to show good durability, has some good defensive skills himself. But has he been hit by a guy like Dana in the past, right? Dana seems to have a tremendous power in his own right. But again, we question the guys that he's knocking out, right? He, the 40-year-old Guido Canetti, Kevin Natividad, who, you know, I, I know he's not hyped, but it seemed like he was a little hyped coming into the UFC by the diehards and all that, thinking that he was going to be something, and then he can't even go out there and even get a win. Uh, and then obviously Brandon Davis coming in on short notice in that spot. But I think Batgarillo could get the better of these striking exchanges, especially if he's able to to nullify that kicking game of, of Chris Gutierrez. I'm seeing a ton of love on Gutierrez. I know that you're likely going to be one of those guys on him as well, but I, I, I'm wondering what this fight looks like if Chris can't be successful with the calf kicking game. We saw uh, Fiziev shut it down on Dia Casey, not saying that Batkadil is Fiziev by any means, but he has a good enough experience in the kickboxing realm to have an answer for that uh, calf kicking game, whether it's checking it or whether he just counters immediately every time the guy throws a calf kick and tries to scare him off throwing those calf kicks for the majority of the fight. So I, I lean back a real here again, similar to the Dvorak side, see him as a slight favorite. It kind of scares me off from betting him on the money line here at that slight juice, but even his uh, fight uh, or sorry, him to win by decision is sitting around plus three fifty. I think that's kind of sexy, right? We got a fight goes to decision at plus one hundred five as well. I can see this going the full fifteen minutes. I think those line that odd or those odds are very much skewed because of the last two finishes from the uh, from the uh, Dana Batkarill side. And there's going to be another fight that we talk about later here, where you know the, the fight doesn't go to decision odds are skewed because of what's been going on in the last couple of fights. But here. I like uh, Bakaria. I like him by decision plus 350. I think the line is a little bit too wide. I think this fight goes to decision more often than not. Uh, and yeah, I'm going to pick the Bakaria side. I think he gets the better of the striking exchanges as long as he can shut down that calf kicking game of Chris. How do you see this one going down? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. The amount of love on Gutierrez I did not expect, and it makes me a little nervous about being on him here. But I, but I do like Chris here. With that said, so, um, sorry, I, sorry, sorry. What did you say at the top here? What what's I said the cost? amount of love on Gutierrez makes oh, me a okay. bit nervous about that. Never seems <laughs> the mush, to end well. The to be honest, is, is getting to you right now. I get it. To be to be honest with you, um, but I, I do like him here. You know. I shouldn't say like I like him a ton. Like I wouldn't make him like a minus two hundred favorite against an hour or anything like that, you know. But I, I do think he provides some issues, and not just you know. I think the obvious thing that everybody says is like, oh, leg kicks. Can he deal with leg kicks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I I mean that's part of the equation, right? But it's also like to not. First of all, we're in a big cage here. I don't think many people are talking about that. Like we actually are in the big cage this week. It's not in the apex which I think benefits Chris a lot. You know, he is not going to be a guy who's just going to back, you know, he'll play the back foot, but he's not going to just stand in front of the and let the not fire big combinations, like say Brandon Davis on one line or one leg or Greta did, you know, he's going to move. And like, whether, you know, 
can Denah effectively pressure him? He might be able to, but it's like he had, if you watch the Barcelos fight, like I probably rate Barcelos striking a bit higher than Denah's. And when they were at distance, he, it's close when it, it is close, but when they, at were least at not distance, this version of Barcelos that we're getting nowadays. But yeah. I mean, who knows? Yeah. But I mean, getting volume. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, yeah, that did not look great. Uh, admittedly. Um, but get, but you know, he had Barcelos really, really confused on the feet in that fight. You know, he was winning the fight standing without really too much if issue at all. And like, I, I do think that might have the ability to check some kicks, but like Chris also does, you know, I think what makes his kick special and this is the power behind them is he does disguise them like very, very well. There's almost no telegraph when he throws those kicks. And so it's really a question to me, can, you know, did not keep him on the back foot for 15 minutes. And like, maybe he can, and maybe he can effectively pressure him. And if that's the case, then I think you're probably looking at a fight that favors Baccarill. But I also kind of think Gutierrez's boxing is getting a tad bit underrated because, you know, the Kolaris fight happened. And it's like he outlanded Kolaris 98 to 42 in that fight. You know, that should not have been a split decision. And also, you know, Felipe presented threats that Denai is just not going to present here, for being honest. Like, Felipe was trying to clinch him up, take him down, and submit him. That is not going to be something he has to worry about in this fight. Uh, we've seen Chris deal with better strikers than just about anybody Denai has faced outside of, I guess, Kaikara France. But that was, I think it was France's second or third fight. It was years and years and years ago. Um, I, I just kind of think Chris's volume is pretty reliable. And when it comes to you know, the actual striking stylistics, you know, Baccarill doesn't really throw kicks. He doesn't throw to the body really at all. He's pretty much strictly a headhunter. And so far throughout Gutierrez's career, we've seen he does an a remarkable job of like stopping head strikes. Guys just don't land head strikes on him. They try, but he measures distance well, and he doesn't really stand in front of people. He's just going to keep moving until he can set up his kicks or his own strikes. And so it's like, I have a headhunter against a guy who stops head strikes really well. Uh, against the guy who's going to do the kind of attritional work that we really haven't seen uh, Baccarill face in his career, you know. And, and let's be honest, you know, Gino had some success with kicks against him. Um, and a guy whose volume, I think, <clears throat> is a bit more reliable. And that guy has also fought just a much, much better strength and schedule. So for me, like with that dynamic, it's just like I kind of have to make Gutierrez like a slight favorite. Like I, I have him like 50, 55%. Like I, I think it's a very, very close fight but I don't really think Chris should be a dog here. I don't think that makes, I shouldn't say it doesn't make sense. Like if you think that is going to get in his face and keep him on the back foot the entire time and be able to land head strikes really easily, then yeah, sure. Then he probably should be a wider favorite. I just don't think that's going to be quite as easy as it seems, given what we've seen from Chris, who will be constantly moving. I think it could be a low volume fight, but I really think if it goes 15 minutes, I have to trust Chris to do the better work here and to land more strikes. You know, we just haven't really seen anybody that land him. Mean, this is a guy who won a striking fight with some more volume, which is again isn't aging that well after last, yeah, <laughs> after last week. You well, want to talk about even, even that fight? Uh, that one kind of surprised me when I saw it on the record of tomorrow. Uh, but watching that fight back, very low pace, very low volume, yeah. literally just training leg kicks, not much going on there. I think we're going to get much more offense from Denai in terms of just trading leg kicks we we may but it's also you know it's not as like you look at like the guys he's fought like alatang Haley gave up 170 significant strikes to casey kenny you know he's fighting guys who are very 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 easy to get volume off on whereas gutierrez is kind of the polar opposite who is very 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 hard to get volume off on effectively um 
But look, ultimately, I think it's a very close fight. I just lean the Gutierrez side here. I think he should be a slight favorite. I just think he's proven a whole lot more. And like I said, he's very hard to land head strikes on, and his output's a lot more reliable. And so with that being the case, do I think Chris finishes him? Probably not, because you're probably relying on a leg kick finish there. And I don't think Denai is going to do the Vince thing and just kind of stand in front of him and let um, let him just kick him in the legs over and over again the way Vince did. Uh, so I like Chris' decision. Plus 225, I think, is a pretty good number for something that I think is closer to like 40%. So, yeah, I'm on the Chris' decision here. I like it. I like it. All right, let's move on to the next one here. We got Sarah McMahon taking on Carol also, Hosa. Sorry, go ahead. Real quick, I saw someone bring up the significant strike numbers. That also takes into account ground strikes and isn't count distance pace, just for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. They count, like, if you actually look at distance pacing, Chris's distance pacing is better than his. There you go. Look at, look at this guy with the hashtag stats matter facts. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next bantamweight fight here uh, between Sarah McMahon and Carol Hosa. In terms of odds, we got minus 200 on Hosa and plus uh, 170 the return on Sarah McMahon. Uh, man, I, I've I've been big on Carol Hosa in the past. I think she has good potential. I think she has a good future. But there's one part of her game we have yet to see her truly tested in, and that is the grappling. Now she's going up probably against the best raw grappler that we have in that division in Sarah McMahon. And that's what's ultimately keeping me off the Carol Hosa side. I just don't know if I have the balls to go out there and bet a 41-year-old Sarah McMahon who, you know, seems to have a cardio issue, especially if she's dealing with any sort of resistance. Now, don't get me wrong. Two fights ago, she beat Lena Landsberg via decision over 15 minutes. So she can still do it. But it just depends on what kind of offense we're going to be getting from uh, Carol Hossa more than likely when she's on her back. Because she is going to get taken down. That is without a doubt. I'm sure she's going to get taken down. But what's her get-up game look like? What's her defensive grappling look like? She's a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. Is she going to actually throw up submissions? Because what I saw in the regional scene doesn't show me anything that she's going to be able to do anything like that against a strong, tough woman like Sarah McMahon on top of her. So there's a couple of ways that you can go about betting this fight, in my opinion. You can either take Sarah McMahon pre-fight and then hedge off on Carol Hosa live, especially going into that third round. You can take Sarah McMahon pre-fight and bet the round three Carol Hosa Maybe she gets a finish, but not notoriously a finisher, especially when she's still going out there and throwing 150-plus strikes. She still can't finish anybody. It's really coming down to the cardio issue of Sarah McMahon because if she can go out there and put up, put together a solid 10 minutes of grappling and control and then just hold on enough to get a 10-9 loss in that third round and then take home a decision victory, it's possible. It could absolutely happen, which is why my pick is going to be Sarah McMahon here uh, in terms of prop, the, the Sarah McMahon via decision at plus 400 is kind of sexy to me because I do think that she can go out there and just uh, grapple Hosa. Maybe Hosa's brown belt pays off for her here in terms of not getting submitted, although two out of the three losses on her record are via submission against Larissa Pacheco and Melissa Gato, who might have more of a, a pure jiu-jitsu game better than Sarah McMahon. Sarah McMahon is just more so crushing top pressure, looking for an arm triangle choke more often than not. That's kind of her game. Whereas the other women, like I stated, guillotine choke for Larissa Pacheco and Kimura for Melissa Gato. And again, those fights were four-ish years ago, just under four years ago. 
if this fight is a complete striking fight, obviously Carol Hosa is going to have the advantage here, right? That's where I think she shines is when she puts up those numbers, hundred numbers, right? What, what what's her significant strikes line of premiere? I think it's like close to seven or something like that. Absolutely insane. She's absolutely up there, but she's not going to be able to stop takedowns here, and that's what's keeping me off of you know backing her in this minus two hundred spot is we just don't have enough answers about that grappling game. So, yeah. I might talk myself into it. I still don't have a dog of the night play for this week. There's a couple of spots I'm looking at, and Sarah McMahon was one of them. I said earlier in the week that I don't have the balls to better, but fuck, like it's it, this this card is start to, starting to dry thin in terms of the underdogs that I actually like in this spot. Uh, and Sarah McMahon, you know, women's MMA seems to be my bread and butter. And if I have that nice gut feeling like I did about Elise Reed last week, but didn't fucking pull the trigger... I might end up having to pull the trigger here on Sarah McMahon to go out there and get this uh, decision. Maybe a, a sprinkle. Well, again, plus one eighty-five, plus one seventy is not a bad of a line under a money line. But even the decision, our decision prop at plus four hundred, that might be worth a little bit of a stab here uh, as well. I think you have a slightly different take on this one that I can't wait to hear your thoughts on. Uh, but yeah, I'll go McMahon. McMahon decision plus four hundred, and even what, what's the uh, sorry, what's the overs? sitting at here uh over two and a half minus 185 not too bad minus 160 on the fight goes to decision yeah uh i'll go mcmahon mcmahon decision as my favorite prop sort of about you well i mean i bet mcmahon I, I i i guess for me like if you lean the rosa side of things i think you kind of have to wait and see how it plays out like it's hard for i, I can't imagine laying you know a rosa money line here without yeah. see because like the data that like, like you mentioned it, the available data on Rose's grappling is pretty limited and the stuff that is there doesn't look very good to be honest and like I know she stuffed five takedowns against uh, Laura Procopio but I mean this is just another fucking level like you know Sarah would do bad things to Laura Procopio and wrestle if they were wrestling um I mean this is an Olympic silver medalist we're talking about here who's got okay jiu-jitsu like not great but okay uh, and I kind of think some of I don't want to call it narrative because I do think McMahon has a penchant for quitting. Like, I'm not going to say she doesn't, but I also kind of think it's important to kind of contextualize, you know, those fights and who the people she lost to were like, uh, Juliana Pena. She's a champion, very good scram scrambler. Uh, Marion Renault back then at least had an excellent guard game. You know, that's just the reality. Ketlin Vieira, excellent grappler. Amanda Nunes, enough said. Close fight with Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey. It's like, these are not people that I am necessarily ready to classify Hosa as a grappler anyway on that level, you know? Um, maybe she is, but we haven't seen it, and the stuff we have seen hasn't been good. And when McMahon has had a grappling advantage, she has not quit or, or lost, you know? She has actually just smashed the people that she's had big grappling advantages against. Like, you know, Alexis Davis, pretty credentialed black belt. She tore through her over the course of eight minutes and sub during the second round. So I kind of think the idea that McMahon, if it gets out of the first round is fucked here is kind of crazy, to be honest. It really depends on Rosa. You know, if it turns out Carol actually does have a great get up game, um, then yeah, I think she'll get up and I think she'll dominate the fight. I actually like a lot of the tools that Rosa has, you know, she has elite output, you know, for yeah. a WMA fighter. She's a big girl. She throws leg kicks. She does attritional work. But I think I think I'm pretty sure she's gonna get taken down here. And I suspect that her bottom game is pretty bad just based off what I've seen. Now look, obviously, like you know, the Pacheco fight was a long time ago. The Gato fight even was a few years ago. Now she wasn't on bottom there, but just you know, some of the IQ moves she made in the grappling stood out to me as 
makes me think she won't really know what to do in transitions here. Um, yeah, so my suspicion is that McMahon's going to be able to get her down and hold her down and possibly submit her here. Uh, you know, and that's kind of the thing is that if McMahon can pass, she can put you in like serious danger. Uh, the, but, you know, it's kind of a classic fight where it's like the winner probably looks hindsight minus 300. You know, if it turns out Hosa can get up, she's going to butcher her. You know, yeah. and I think that's pretty clear. But if she can't, you know, McMahon has big favorite scope in this fight. So I lean to the McMahon side. I better. I actually kind of like McMahon by submission at plus 800. I also think McMahon's submission round one at plus 1700 isn't bad. Like if it comes out here and, and Hose is on the mat inside 30 seconds and McMahon's then mounting her and arm tri triangling her, I really won't be shocked, to be honest. So I like the McMahon submission side of things, but I like the McMahon money line more than anything else. But again, it's like, know what you're getting yourself into yeah. because it's honestly possible that, you know, Hosa should be a big, bigger favorite than she is, you know? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you there. It, it, it's one of those spots that we just don't know 100% sure whether yeah, Hosa is going to be able to, well, no, we know for sure she's not going to be able to stuff takedowns. She will get taken down. It's what she provides off her back that we still have question marks about. And when you're doing it and trying to figure it out against a heavy top grappler like Sarah McMahon, things may not play out the best as possible. So, yeah, I, I might be talking myself into that McMahon bet as well. Maybe a, a hedge on hosts around yeah. three. But, uh, again. Not, the problem with the round three hedge, though, right, is it's just like Hosa could kind of, like, if Hosa can get it on the feet, I kind of think McMahon quits fast. Like, it, it, it's kind of funny. It's like one of those things where it's like, Normally, I love having Hosa by decision because she's such a good minute winner standing. She doesn't really lose decisions. But, like, I don't think Sarah McMahon is standing with her for three rounds and surviving, you know? <laughs> That's just, just my gut anyway. Uh, another prop I actually want to throw out there, I think it's very live in the spot, actually, is the uh, the draw. What if we get, you know, two 10-9 rounds for uh, McMahon early and then uh, a 10-8 round for Rosa in round three where she's not able to get her out of there? A draw is absolutely possible. I think yeah. it's, what, plus 6,500 or something like that, worth a little bit of a sprinkle, especially when we have, like, giant, well, seemingly giant cardio edges in fights. Uh, I think it's more than uh, likely as well. So if you guys are uh, keen to those draw props, go ahead and throw that on there because I feel like that's something that could hit in the spot. All right, let's move on. To the next fight, we got the prelim headliner, I believe it is. Why is my uh, fucking topology not loading? There we go. Uh, prelim headliner, we got my guy Neil Magny going up against Max Payne Griffin. In terms of odds, we currently have minus 230 on uh, Magny, plus 195 the return on Max Griffin. Now, it's always weird when I try to have a lock of the night play against the guy who I had as my lock of the night play in the last fight. Max Griffin was my lock that I played against Carlos Condon. Good God, did he make me sweat in that fucking fight going out there and just throwing leg kicks in that first round, not going for any takedowns. And he wins that first round off of leg kicks. So I was like, okay, sure, go ahead. If you want to stick with leg kicks, keep going with the leg kicks. Then he lays off the leg kicks in round two, allowing Carlos Condon to beat him up in that second round. Then it's 1-1 going into that third round. Luckily, he pulls a takedown out of his ass uh, with one minute left in that fight able to get some control time, get some damage off him on top, and then he secures the win for him there. Good God, it was way too much of a sweat, though. But Neil Magny is one of my favorite fighters to bet on because that guy is a fucking fighter. The guy goes out there and does what he needs to do to win. That's why I've been able to cash him on the underdog spots in two spots recently against Li Jingliang and his last fight against Jeff Neal. 
The guy is a workhorse. The one thing I love about his game, especially in that clinch position where he does most of his work, and whenever guys try to engage him with him in there, the guy immediately digs for underhooks, reverses position, or breaks back to, uh, breaks back out into space and gets back to his uh, herky-jerky, stutter-step type of style uh, of striking. Another thing that he does in the clinch that I find interesting, if he's not getting the underhooks, he'll kind of he'll go for the Muay Thai plum, and that almost immediately enforces the opponent to disengage. I'm not sure if they're scared of getting hitting with knees up the middle, elbows or something like that, but even if they're the one pushing Neil Magny up against the cage and he gets that Muay Thai plum, they immediately disengage. And I find that very interesting, especially with how long and lanky he is at this frame as well. Uh, his striking, like I said, not the craziest technical striking, but he still goes out there and puts a patient pressure on his opponents, more often not forcing them on their back foot. And that's the quickest way for a lot of fighters to gas out is when they're moving backwards for pretty much the majority of the fight, which is what I think is going to happen here. I don't see where Max Griffin wins this fight. If he goes out there and spams takedowns and people are expecting him to have control like how Michael Chiesa had control, I think they're going to be sorely mistaken. Michael Chiesa is one of the best no. grapplers out there. And in terms of controlling his opponents, he's one of the best guys out there as well. Just look what he did against uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, another guy who's quite good at doing exactly that. Right, that's Michael Chiesa's game. Max Griffin don't do that. When Max Griffin gets takedowns, he doesn't get much control time. And if you just look at the Chiesa fight for Magni and be like, oh, his get-ups aren't that good, go back even more. There's fights where he gets taken down and immediately starts digging for his underhooks and trying to get back to his feet, starting to create scrambles, whether it's going for that leg lock, whatever it is, but he always finds his way back to his feet. Where does Max Griffin win this fight? A Hail Mary knockout? Well... John, the last time uh, Neil Magny got finished was Santiago Ponsnibio in the fourth round of a fight where he got his legs absolutely chewed up. And are you trying to compare Santiago Ponsnibio's leg kicks to Max Griffin's leg kicks? I hope not, because fighters have tried to replicate that game plan in the uh, after the Santiago fight, even the Li Jingliang fight. And Neil Magny did the perfect thing. He didn't even need to check him. He just marches these opponents down, and it's harder to get those leg kicks off of your back foot than when you're the one kind of dictating and controlling the striking pace. I don't know why I'm getting so heated over a minus 230 favorite because he should be a minus 230 favorite, maybe even more uh, once this fight wraps up. But yeah, I, I love Magni here. I put out a little bit of a half joking tweet earlier today saying uh, Neo Magni seeking that finish or, or anybody sweating their Neo Magni decision tickets. It, it's a joke, guys. Come on. I'm not, I'm not fucking. I know how these interview things go. But uh, yeah, one of my favorite props on the card, Magni by decision. I think he goes out there, puts Max Griffin through the ringer, and uh, wins this fight by decision. If you are scared that Griffin will collapse under that pressure, round three or decision, if you guys have access to those, I think that's not bad of a line either. But uh, yeah, I think Magni does absolute work. Crazy that he's only 34 years old, right? Yeah. Max Griffin's the one that's 36. But Neil Magni, who feels like he's been around the game forever, is only 34 years old and can still be that, like, top 10 gatekeeper in a sense he's gonna keep those guys out that don't deserve to be in that top 10 and uh yeah neo magni is one of the more reliable guys out there i think he does absolute work he's a part of my lock that i play honestly i love him in this spot uh but him by decision will probably be my favorite prop how do you see this one going down yeah i'm a little bummed i waited to tape it because i would have i would have laid it with magni at like minus 185 to be honest yeah. after i i came out of it, it you know magni I mean, he's one of the most plus EV fighters you'll ever look for. You know, yeah. what do you really want in a fighter that you're betting on? A guy with high output, great cardio, and who can grapple. You know, he does all of those things. He fights to his strengths pretty consistently. Um, you know, with Magni, it's usually a pretty clear thing. It's like he runs up against an athletic wall when he hits the top 10 generally. 
But lower than that, he tends to beat all the guys below that. You know, uh, I like I've always been a Max Griffin fan. Like I kind of think he's always been a guy that's kind of more talented than, you know, his performances have translated to. But like Griffin's just a weird fighter, man. Like he cannot seem to put together two good performances in a row, even two good rounds in a row at times. Yeah. You know, you see moments <laughs> with him like the Condit fight. You know, first of all, like you mentioned that people are talking about Griffin's going to wrestle Magni. Griffin didn't wrestle Carlos fucking Condit. Because he's going to come out here and wrestle the, and we, we have another fighter who didn't wrestle uh, yeah, Carlos Condit that we'll get to in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> is he going to come out here and wrestle Neil Magni? I really um, don't think so. Like, Kiesa look, is one of the best fighters in the division. Like, I don't yeah. – I bet Kiesa big in that fight. I don't yeah. take anything away anything away from Magni for losing that fight. It's like the guys out grappling Magni, Rafael Dos Anjos, Michael Kiesa, that's not Max Griffin, you know? <laughs> My, the big concern that I have with Griffin, and you touched on it a bit, is the leg kicks. But – even with the leg kicks, like if you look at Griffin's career, he hasn't really been a proactive leg kicker. And like early in the Condit fight, he was. And then for whatever reason, like I said, he can't put together two consistent rounds in a row. He just stopped kicking legs in a round two. Ended up making that a sweaty fight in a fight that didn't need to be sweaty. You know, he basically took, if Neil Magny is a consistent plus EV fighter, Max Griffin is a consistently minus EV fighter. You know, <laughs> the guy just does not, he fights the hardest possible fight all the time. Yeah. Um, and I do think Max is talented, but the reality is, we're only a couple years removed from Max losing a decision to Curtis Melender, uh, having that awful fight with Alex Oliveira. You know, I mean, he you lost know, to Tiago Alves in 2018. I, he did get robbed in that fight, in fairness. That, I don't that, care. You, you, <laughs> the fights just can still not be that close against the aged and withered Tiago Alves. That, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's like Max just, he never really kind of lives up to the talent level unless he's taking a step down. And it's like, yeah. you look at this winning streak he's on, it's like, um, Who's the kid who just lost to Courtney? Song, he knocked him out. who is not really not UFC level. Kanan uh, Song, who's not very good, and Carlos Condit, who's a corpse at this point. You know that it, it's really he's looked good to a degree in these fights, but you know Neil Magny is just a different beast altogether. It's like I have some concerns about the leg kicks, but ultimately, you know. I think Magny can deal with them fine. He'll probably switch stances like he did with Lee. You know, I don't know that Griffin can throw them out of both stances. I think Magny's output is going to be reliable. He's a much longer fighter, especially, which is very beneficial against a guy like Griffin, who's very happy to accept the outside. Magny should be able to control distance fairly well. If he wants to wrestle, I think he can here. Um, yeah, I, I think Magny's clearly the side in this fight. And I kind of think... Yeah, I, I mean, I guess Magny by decision. I, I guess the concern for me is like Magny has KO'd a guy, few guys on the mat here. Um, Griffin does seem to be pretty responsible though on the mat, so I don't think he did get KO'd by Covington, but that was after like eleven takedowns, I think. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, Magny decision is probably the best way to play it if you're looking for a prop here. But I think Neil is a pretty good spot. I like it. I like it. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. Uh, main card coming right up. Shout out to the 130 live viewers. I think this is one of our larger live viewing experiences, especially at this uh, time slot that we have on uh, a Thursday afternoon. So shout out to all you guys in the chat right now. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. Show my guy John some love as well. Follow him on Twitter at MMA Fox, and then check out his podcast that he does as well with Sparring with Reality Betting. Uh, Luke, uh, we got my guy Danny Legs on there. See, I don't think I've seen him on the show in, in recent 
recent weeks. What, what's going on with that man? Has he disappeared? He's been shit? uh he's been uh take I think he's uh, he's been helping one of his friends with the bar that they own. So he has okay. not been around on Wednesdays. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's usually those trio. I think it was just the two of you guys yesterday. Yeah, but make sure you guys check out the Club and Sub podcast. Link is in the description below. They go live every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern. Shorta boys, some love. All right. Let's get to the main card here. Uh, a, another prove it spot coming for Mr. Slava Claus. Vyacheslav Borshev going up against Mark D. Casey. Right now, we got minus 150 on uh, Vyacheslav and plus 130 the return on Mark D. Casey. Interesting line movement here as uh, Vyacheslav opened up close to minus 200. Now he's coming down to minus 150. People buying into the veteran Mark D. Casey, although. You know, Casey on a little bit of a tough run right now over his last couple fights. Let me just pull up the actual thing here. Uh, last fight, he obviously lost to Rafael Alves uh, via guillotine choke. Before that, he lost to Rafael Faziev. Thank God he's not fighting another Rafael because it would be hilarious if he lost three straight fights to guys named Rafael. But either way, um, before that, he was on a two-fight winning streak against guys like Joe Duffy and Lando Venata. Both fights were, you know, what I was talking about earlier in the Chris Gutierrez fight, he really leaned on that calf kick in those fights to open up the rest of his game. Uh, I'd be surprised if he can do it effectively here against Borshev, but I still do think his complete MMA game could really show us what Vyacheslav brings to the table. Uh, Borshev could go out there and, you know, if he gets taken down, he could work his way back to his feet and get back to his bread and butter, which is his combination striking, his kicking game. It all looks great, right? His body work looks fucking insane, especially the way he was able to crumple Dakota Bush in his last fight. But now he's fighting like a legit, complete veteran in Mark Diakase, who will likely have the speed advantage in this fight too. If he's able to go out there and throw in some feints of takedowns or even land a couple of takedowns, it gives Borshev a lot to think about, which might kind of nullify uh, his confidence in throwing combinations and being as active as he has in past fights. It's 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 the it's the shit. Who's the who's the guy that he beat on the contender series? Uh, uh, Chris, Chris Duncan. Duncan. Yeah, that fight, like from the jump, it seemed like his confidence was high and it was just rising as he continued to hurt Chris Duncan and start to run through him. Same thing with the Dakota Bush fight. Didn't face much resistance there and then eventually got him out there really quickly. Is he going to be able to get DKC out of there really quickly? I'm I'm questioning that, right? I know Rafael Alves did it last time around, but Rafael Fiziev took a full 50 years to try to get him out of there. Albeit the, that's Alves's more often than not, that's kind of his win condition. Nice and early, gets those guys out of there quickly. And luckily for him, he's able to do that against DK Casey. I, I, the other questions I have about this fight is the fact that it came together so quickly. You know, shout out to my guy Newsom who manages uh, Mark D.A.K.C. But uh, I have a text message from him on January 27th. That's 12 days after Vyacheslav folded Dakota Bush. And he goes, oh, we just got offered Borshev. Can you send me his tape index and then we'll look into this fight? So that's what, about two months of prep time for a guy in Vyacheslav who's on a little bit of a heater right now? That is kind of you know gives me uh something to some pause as well in regards to this fight in terms of capping it but i do like the the dkc side here ever so slightly i do think his complete mma game could give yachislav some issues my question marks kind of similar to the carol hosta side is how does Vyacheslav look off of his back and has he been working on his get-up game to this point looks decent but on the regional scene it is quite questionable now he's finding the biggest opponent of his career will he be able to pass the test I'm not willing to bet him at at minus money or at chalk to find out either I understand the early love coming in on DA Casey given the hype and all that type of stuff I kind of understand where the line is now I think it's appropriate especially if you take hype into consideration but in terms of actual skills 
I think uh, people might be overlooking DK here, and he could absolutely spoil the party of Slava Claus, who, as a fan, I want to see Slava Claus take it all the way to the title. You know what I mean? I want to see this guy go out there dancing over all over everybody's dead bodies as he's fucking like just uh, absolutely snatching bodies left and right here. But I think he's going to find trouble here doing that against Mark D. Casey. Give me D. Casey. Give me D. Casey by decision as my favorite prop. I do think we'll see this go the full 15, especially if Mark goes out there and implements uh, a full MMA game. Uh, D. Casey by decision plus 300. Not too shabby. I like that. What do you What are you thinking here, Fox? Yeah. Oh God, dear Casey Alves fight. You know, it was like watching a car crash in slow motion. I bet. Oh my God. And as soon as he got stunned in my head, I'm like, don't shoot, don't shoot. Don't <laughs> shoot. Oh my God, he shot. And you could knew he. I knew he was getting stopped before he even he was even all the way in. Um, but look, I've always kind of been a Mark guy. You know, I, I think he's another guy who like he's always had tools. You know, he's a great athlete. He's you know an excellent athlete. He's got a good jab. He's got a good low cook kick he's a decent wrestler he's just never really been able to kind of put it all together um with slava look slava's offense it's hard not to like right that body work he throws is fucking nasty you know it, it, it is he throws out as good body work as anybody in that division uh my question with slava though is like i don't really know what he is you know it's very easy to kind of look at the outcomes of his fights but if you actually look at each fight like you go back three fights ago kenley st louis rocks him bad takes his back takes a round off him and it looked like that fight was a fight he was about to lose. And then St. Louis gasses out. He takes over, puts it on him late, gets him out of there. Contender series fight. Looks good early. Uh, middle of the first round, though, Duncan starts looking like he's taken over the fight. Then obviously round two starts and Slava catches and puts him out. Dakota Bush fight. Bush comes out there, wobbles him on the feet, takes him down twice, gets too aggressive in passing. He gets up and rocks him and puts him out of there. But, like, the bottom line is, like, look, Dakota Bush, he's fun, but – He's not really a UFC caliber fighter. He doesn't have any quality wins, really. Uh, Kenley St. Louis is a below 500 fighter. Chris Duncan, very, very young fighter. Hard to know what he is. Slava's had issues with a lot of guys who are nowhere near the level that like Mark Casey is on. Um, I, again, I, I will say I do like you know Slava's offense, but the reality is he doesn't have much defense. He's very hittable. We've seen him hurt. Uh, we've seen him gas out and slow down. We've seen him taken down and held on the fence. Um, my big question, and I think Casey's capable of doing all of those things. He was a very explosive athlete. It's probably the first time Slava's at an athleticism disadvantage. We've seen Slava get kicked. And it's just like, my big concern with Mark is, like you saw it in the physio fight, he has a tendency when guys really bite down and go for him to kind of back down when he gets bullied and get bullied a bit. Uh, and I guess that could happen here. But it's also like, man... Like, I'd have Biziev probably, like, minus 300 against Slava. It's like, can I really say, oh, Biziev bullied Mark, so Slava's going to do it? Or Nazareth bullied him, so Slava's going to? Maybe, maybe he's on that level. But, like, the guy is still fairly early in his MMA journey, you know? He only has seven career pro fights um, and MMA fights. Obviously, he has a large amount of kickboxing experience. But I, I just think there's a lot of spots where Mark can have success here. You know, I know we can get his offense off. I have very little doubt about that. It's really can worst shit out offense him, but I think Mark's got better defense, and I think he has the capability to wrestle him. The problem with the wrestling is I just don't know what Mark offers from top position. You know, he'll land takedowns, but he kind of, you know, he's like one of these guys that once he gets the top position, he's kind of just like, okay, now what do I do? Um, so like, I, I don't really imagine Mark landing 
three takedowns and holding him down for 10 minutes, that seems pretty unlikely to me. But him landing three or four takedowns across 15 minutes and landing harder shots, making Slava miss a lot, those are things I think he could do here. And I kind of think if Slava comes in and gets reckless with the body work, he might leave himself open to get encountered hard. So I actually – I don't favor Mark Big, but I do kind of favor him. I mean, Mark's been in there with some serious killers, Fiziev, Hooker, uh, Butcher Close. You know, obviously he beat Lando. Um, yeah, I, I almost think you have to favor Mark in this spot. So I bet Mark. Uh, I like decision a lot as well, just because it's kind of funny. He has the nickname Bone Crusher from all those KOs he got regionally, but he hasn't KO'd anybody in the UFC. I don't really think it's super likely he KOs him. I kind of think Mark grinds him against the fence a lot here, jabs him a bunch. But yeah, I like Mark by decision. I like him on the money line. I think it's a pretty good spot for him. Yeah, I agree with the majority of your takes here. And I know that Mark is known as a striker. That's kind of his bread and butter. But I saw a comment in the comment section talking about uh, why the fuck would Mark grapple, right? He's not a grappler. Tell me why he has 16 takedowns in 10 UFC fights then. <laughs> yes, he's known he, as he a striker. He wrestles a good bit. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. He wrestles a decent amount. And for him to put together a full MMA game here would be optimal, especially against a guy who's mainly been striking. And Vietslav Borshev, who wants to keep it in that in that range. So, yeah. and honestly, Mark didn't look bad against Fiziev. It just turned out at the time people were like, "Oh, you know, he looked bad." It turns out Fiziev's like a top ten guy, and you know, he won the third round in that fight. He had moments throughout that fight, you know. So, I don't know. I think he's being slept on a bit here. Yeah, no, no, I like it. Again, shout out to everybody that got in early on DAKC, uh, plus 150, plus 170, but even at plus 130 might be worth a little bit of a stab here if you can put it together. I, I There is obviously a huge part of me that sees Slava going out there and just getting his combination game off, but it depends on the speed advantage of DAKC and if he can implement it here. And obviously he has some decent power. We'll see if he can actually uh, make it come to fruition here against Slava, who's on a clear heater and uh, got a ton of that uh, puppet glove as well. All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got uh, pa -pa 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 -pa. we got uh, a, a shit show, <laughs> a car crash. Uh, either it's going to be long and drawn out or it's going to be quick and painless. We got Alexei Olenek going up against Ilir Latifi. Uh, minus 205 on Latifi, plus 175 the return on Alexei Olenek. Uh, crazy line movement here as well, right? We had uh, Latifi around minus 140 earlier in the week. Now here, here, he's, here he sits as a 2-1 to one favorite. Um, Personally, I want nothing to do with this fight. Similar to, uh, fuck, I forgot what fight it was that we were talking about earlier, where I just want to act like it's not even on the card when I'm making my lottery picks or my lottery parlays or something like that because I could see this fight going in every single direction. I could see Ilir Latifi knocking him out quickly. I can see Latifi clinching him up against the cage and controlling him for 15 minutes and only landing five significant strikes and winning a decision like he did against Tanner Bozer. Or we can see Olenek topple him over uh, and get on top of him and somehow pull a submission out of his ass. Everything is possible in this fight. Under one and a half at plus 140. That piques my interest ever so slightly. But I just, I can see the scenario where Latifi's strength and, and, and grappling will just be a little bit too much for Olenek to actually get any type of jiu-jitsu off, right? Um, I forgot who it was, but somebody said one of the, oh, uh, it was Daniel Cormier. He goes, one of the toughest guys I've ever wrestled or grappled against is Ilya Latifi because that guy is a fucking, uh, he's a tree. The guy's very difficult to fucking grapple with and get anything going off against because he's very hard to, uh, one, take down, two, even move because the guy is so fucking thick. And now he's at 250 whatever pounds, right? He used to fight a lot of heavyweight. Crazy how big this dude is nowadays. But 
Uh, yeah, I, I honestly want nothing to do with this fight. I'm just for the sake of the podcast. My favorite prop is going to be the under two and, or under one and a half plus one forty. I'm assuming that Olenek crashes forward recklessly as he always does and pays for it by getting clipped uh, cleanly here by Latifi. As long as Latifi goes out there and throws power, right? Hopefully he doesn't just engage with uh, Olenek as he tries to close the distance and clinch up with him. Hopefully he actually tries to throw some strikes and get him out of there. Hopefully he sees he's going to be the faster fighter in this fight, at least for the first maybe five minutes of this fight. Hopefully he can get it off and get that knockout going. But uh, yeah, I, I want nothing to do with this fight. I could see it going any way, uh, but give me the Tiffy knockout under one and a half. What about you, John? You got a you got a passionate fight, take here? This fight's a fucking mess, honestly. Like I, I, I thought I was gonna play Latifi at minus one fifty, and I guess I can't like hate on anybody who really did that. Um, what ultimately led me to pass, aside from the line going up, is it's just like Alir does not you know a whole lot you know alir's wins generally look like either he clips you and subs you or he rides you out in top position the problem is he doesn't throw ground and pound in top position right so he gives up a lot of stand-ups um he also puts himself in a position because he doesn't throw ground and pound of he can just lose rounds where he eats shots on the feet and then still get freeman's control but drops rounds and on the feet you know he doesn't throw strikes either he hits very hard but he doesn't really let his hands go ever. And so it, it's kind of weird because I do think Alir can take down Olenek and likely hold him there. But I also have this like sneaking suspicion. Like how often do we see wrestlers who shouldn't be afraid of their opponent's guard not go into their opponent's guard though because they're a black belt? Like it happens all the time. And, and I kind of have this sneaking suspicion that might happen here. And if Alir decides to strike with him, look, Olenek's gassy. He's pretty fragile. He can get KO'd. But he's going to throw a lot more strikes than Latifi's going to throw, man. It, it, it's just, you know, the one thing you got to say for the guy is he is not afraid to get KO'd. He will bite the mouthpiece and just let his hands go, you know. So I kind of – I don't really lean to his side because obviously Latifi has the ability to just blanket him here for 15. Uh, I honestly don't think it's very – like, I think Olenek's Jiu-Jitsu is pretty overrated, if I'm being honest. Like, it's, it's good for – guys who don't really know what they're doing you know like when you catch guys in ezekiel chokes and front chokes and stuff but guys who know how to fight choke game he doesn't really offer a whole lot outside of like front chokes and that ezekiel choke like he's not much of a back taker he's not gonna go you know get a body triangle really and hold you no. down for a round he's gonna yes. try to scarf hold you <laughs> yeah exactly like the Derek lewis fight good like, god I, I bet oh they're pretty big in that fight too know. you know and it's just like do something pass them out you know yeah. like, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Um, but so I, I really don't think Olenek's likely to sub him at all. So I do favor Latifi, but it's something that stands out to me kind of because Latifi is pretty durable. Olenek by decision plus 800. Wow. That's that's kind of like if he's going to win, I kind of think that's how he's going to win this fight. Um, I think that's it. That might be worth a little poke. I, I, but I don't love much. He, beat, he beat Verdun by decision. He did you know beat I mean? Verdun. Dude. Oh, God. I lost so much money on that fight. <laughs> I think a lot of people did. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, but yeah, Olympic by decision. I don't love much here. It's a mess. Yeah. I love it. I love it. All right. Let's move on to the next fight because there's a lot more interesting fights to talk about. Uh, very interesting fight here. I, ta I talked about it at the top of the show. Askar Askarov versus Kai Car France, possibly as a number one contender fight for the uh, title fight that's going down in July. But in terms of odds, heavy chalk, obviously, on Askarov here at minus 365, plus 290, the return on Kai Kata France. 
I love Askarov in the spot, man. I think I personally think he's worth the juice. I've seen a, a couple people, uh, you know, trying to make the case for Kai Car France. I really don't see it. Now, there's one thing you can say Kai Car France hasn't really faced much of a grapple heavy threat here in the UFC, at least not in recent memory. I think he, uh, Mark De La Rosa was the last guy to really pursue a grapple heavy approach with him, went one of seven on takedowns. Obviously, there's the Hajiri Bontarin fight from two fights ago where he had his back for, uh, what, four and a half minutes before yeah. getting knocked out. But outside of that, it's mainly striking contest that Kai Car France is going into. I think his knockout power is being slightly over exaggerated here. Uh, considering the two fights that he's coming off of. Obviously, anybody's knocking out Cody Garbrandt nowadays. The Bond train run was impressive. I'll give him that. But before that, it would took him 10 fights to get his next knockout, right? Like, it's not like he's this crazy guy with dynamite in his hands. And I'd be surprised if he's able to knock out a guy in Askarov who hasn't really shown much uh, durability issues throughout his career. Obviously, the guy's undefeated. But even when he's going out there against other power punchers, doing a damn good job of keeping his wits about him. Uh, my, my sneaky spot here, and I want to shout out the guys at the, the Chronic uh, Combat Conversations uh, podcast I did last night. Uh, they brought to my attention the the via submission prop here for Askar Askarov, because if he is going to have as much grappling success as I expect him to, that submission prop could be live here. That currently sits at plus 300. Like, Askar coming into the UFC was a finished machine finishing every single one of his opponents on the regional scene. And we know the uh, the ACB, uh, uh, you know, uh, era there. Those guys, that crop of fighters, they're legit dudes. Like, they're not the the CFF, sorry, they're not the, the Cage Warriors regional scene guys coming into the uh, to the cage. Even some of the LFA guys who, you know, don't look as good uh, once they come into the UFC. But I'm sure a lot of these guys that he's beating on the regional scene could do pretty well inside the UFC as well. But he's gone to nothing but decisions since coming to the UFC. That's four straight uh, decision victories he's had over legitimate competition. Uh, the Brandon Moreno fight, I thought he lost that fight. Moreno way more than showed up that night. I had Askarov as my lock of the night play there. And I thought I came out pretty lucky to just get a, a draw there compared to a losing bet. But the Tim Elliott fight did very well there with mainly just his boxing. That's pretty much how we beat Tim Elliott. Uh, the Pantoja fight outscrambled him in many positions there. And then even the Joseph Benavides fight, that was the one that really opened my eyes where he's beating Joseph Benavides to every single position. Now, we can say that might have been the ghost of Benavides as well, right? That ended up being his last fight, but he was beating him bad to every single position. You're telling me that Kai Car France is going to show us the same type of scramble ability? I don't think so. I think his best way of winning this fight is catching Askarov on the way in with a shot, but I don't even know if that's going to be enough to put out Askarov, who seems very difficult to put away. But uh, Kai Car France, the majority of his losses coming via submission as well. The guy has deficiencies on the ground. We just haven't seen it exposed because he hasn't fought as good of a grappler as a guy like Askarov. So I do think that Askarov will actually get the submission in this spot. Uh, I, I Looking into it a little bit deeper, you know, originally I thought it was going to be Askarov by decision, which sits at minus 125. Not too bad of a line either, especially if you don't like the minus 365 straight up. But I do see the finishing openings and opportunities for Askarov here. And at plus 300, I think it's worth a little bit of a stab for him to go out there and get that finish uh, via submission. So, uh, yeah, am I am I a little bit too high on Askarov in this spot? What are you thinking here? I don't really know. Um, I, I, I guess <laughs> that's, I, I, that's the show, folks. <laughs> I guess I largely side with you on that. Um, and, I, and I do yeah. kind of think. You know, if Askarov is going to be 80, 85% in this spot, you know, like the line implies, it likely means that subline at plus 300 is a bit short. Um, 
yeah. and should probably be you know closer to like plus 200 plus 150. um Abe, just for me like i don't really know what to make of kai as a grappler you know it, it's like he's looked okay like it's not like he looks like a bad defensive grappler I don't think Askarov's as likely to do a volunteering and like take his back before me. It's like not really kind of his style of jujitsu, but you know, with that said, it's like, this is such a huge step up grappling wise for Kai. It's like, he's looked solid, but you know, this is just a totally another level. And, you know, as much as, you know, the Tim Elliott and Brandon Moreno fights give me pause with Askarov, it's like, him being able to kind of dominate Joe Benavidez in the grappling, the way he did was impressive. Like nobody does that to Joe. Um, no matter how good they are, really, and he did. And, you know, even though Joe was pretty shot when that fight happened, you know, it's also grappling tends to be the last thing to go, and his grappling looked good as recently as the fight before that. So, I, I you know, I, I'm inclined to think the line should be very, very wide, you know, just because – but, you know, if it turns out that it's not and Kai can get up, you know, I think he's the better striker. I think he can have yeah. success striking here. Uh, the concern, obviously, is Kai's a little fragile – but ultimately, I do think Askarov's going to take care of him here. I, I think he gets gets him out of there at an okay clip. I like the subline of plus three hundred. I, I don't really have much interest in laying, you know, Askarov decision minus one ten. It's like, well, if Askarov's getting dominant positions for that to look like value, he's probably got a pretty good chance to submit him here. You know, we saw Brandon Roy Val sub him, and we've seen Askarov's got a pretty decent choke game himself. So yeah, give me the Askarov subline. Uh, I'm not passionate about it, but I do think you know the line deserves to be about where it is right now. I like it. I like it. And especially if you like the car France side here, uh, to win by KO plus 750 plus 800, depending on your booking, not too bad of a hedge. If you do think he actually finds that chin, but if this goes the full 15 minutes, I'd kind of be surprised if, uh, Kai car France is the one getting his hand raised here. Uh, especially if he has as much striking success as he, as he should, if this stays standing. All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got the the people's main event, I'd say, especially over there in Ohio, because they got the hometown boy, Matt Brown, taking on Brian Barbarena. In terms of odds, we got minus 115 on Barbarena, minus 105 on Matt Brown. But again, throughout most of the bookies, it's seeming like a pick em fight through and through. This one is this one scratching my head a little bit with some of the takes that I've been seeing this week. And I told some of the guys yesterday when I was talking to them uh, on the podcast as well that when I do my research, when I do my work, when I make my predictions, I put the blinders on. I don't bother going on Twitter. You know, I don't look if I see anything about anybody trying to make an opinion about a fight. I'll scroll past too quickly. I don't want to read any anything until I make my own prediction and my own pick and my own read off of my own research, all that tape study, all that shit. And the one thing I thought about this far, I'm like, it's it's more than likely going to be a slugfest. I do think that both of these guys are going to go out there and throw bombs at each other and try to see who, who's going to be able to, you know, stay standing, who's going to win. Maybe we'll see a bit of a, a methodical approach early from these guys. But at the end of the day, I think one more often than not, these guys are going to get into a slugfest. Uh, the, the crazy statistic I threw out there the other day was Matt Brown has fought in Ohio nine times, all nine of those fights finishing inside the distance. And that's kind of the narrative that I like going into this one. Because I saw that line at minus 135 when I made that tweet and I made the bet almost immediately. Now the line is closer to minus 175, minus 200, which I still think it could hold a little bit of value there considering how often these guys will get engaged into that slugfest, right? We, we talked about it earlier with the, uh, fuck, what was it? There was a fight earlier where I saw the, the fight goes to decision was like 
plus 105. I thought it would have been a little bit wider because the the finishing streak that uh, one of those fighters was on. It's a similar thing here with uh, uh, Brian Barbarino, who his last three fights have gone to a decision, but more often than not, the guy likes to go out there and either finish or get finished himself. Uh, I believe the statistic is 49 out of 65 combined fights have finished inside the distance for these guys. And at minus 135, it was indicating, what, 57% of the time? Yeah. Um, so there's a ton of value at that point in time if you got in early on that spot. But I do like uh, Brian Barbarina here, not 41, 42 years old, not looking as fragile as Matt Brown has had in the past. Not to mention it wasn't that long ago that if you blew on Matt Brown's stomach, the guy would fold over. I wouldn't be surprised if Brian Barbaray tries to seek out a body shot finish either. Uh, I like Barbarina here. I like fight doesn't go to decision the most. Um, yeah. I, 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 oh, yeah. Sorry, the narrative that, that kind of made me scratch my head that I talked about at the top of this breakdown was the grappling approach that Matt Brown is magically going to take in this spot. I get it. You know, uh, it doesn't look good for Barbarino in terms of his takedowns that he's given up over his last few fights against guys that are legitimate grapplers. Say what you want about Anthony Ivey. Gets his best work when he's on the ground. I think he secured... Uh, let, let me get the actual statistics here in terms of the numbers that he got taken down with because uh, I, I think it's getting a little bit out of hand with how much confidence people are having with uh, Matt Brown landing takedowns here. So uh, Anthony Ivey, five takedowns against Brian Barbarino for a grand total of... Five and a half minutes of control time. Legitimate jujitsu. Don't get me wrong. Jason Witt, eight takedowns, five and a half minutes of control time. Darian Weeks was pretty much a pick him in that fight. I think he was a very slight underdog because a lot of people yeah. had confidence in him in that spot. But his bread and butter as well is that takedown game. I think that's something that he very much thrives on. Four takedowns there, three minutes of control time. Matt Brown, in his second last fight, where he was supposed to be using his takedowns, to go out there and, you know, grind out the Carlos Condit, who is very horrible at takedown defense, is very horrible in terms of uh, having good top control against. One of six on takedowns. Not good. Not good. He did, does not do a really good job in terms of controlling those positions either. I think that he might land a takedown here or there, but I don't think he's going to control and lay and pray on Brian Barbarina. And then once he realizes that, oh, shit, this game plan is not going to work, I think that they're going to start to swing them bows and swing that leather, and one of these guys is going to go down. Unfortunately for Matt Brown, he's on the wrong side of the age conversation here, and I think that's going to showcase in this fight with Brian Barbarina landing the better strikes, landing the more devastating strikes, and getting him out of there. So give me fight doesn't go to decision, as well as uh, Barbarina KO plus 325, not bad, or even Barbarina inside the distance plus 260, not bad either. I don't get this Matt Brown love. Tell me, John, what am I missing here? Barb's going to kick the shit out of him. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. That's all, folks. Think, Let's go. It's back. I, I think this is fucking nuts, to be honest with you. Yeah. Like, they had – this fight was booked a few months ago, and it was minus 185 Barbarina. That booking got canceled, and now it's even money. Like, I, I guess, in all seriousness, it's like I, – I guess where I come down is, like, first of all, I think there's a narrative out there that Barbarina is shot. And maybe he's regressed a bit, but, like – I think a lot of it comes from Jason Witt knocking him down. But, like, Witt is one of these wrestlers who throws 100% into every shot he throws. And he clipped Barbarina with one of them and dropped him. But it's like, he didn't finish him. And if anything, to be honest, I know Barb lost that fight. That probably should have been a draw. I mean, he beat the hell out of Witt in round three. And him not getting a 10-8 across the board there was kind of weird. Um, but, like, and then his last fight, look, Darian Weeks, 
look, the kid threw a ton of strikes, but I actually thought Barbarina looked pretty good in that fight, especially as he started to settle in the later the fight went. Um, look, Barb is who he is, right? He's not the best defensive striker in the world, but he's always been a fairly durable guy. He works the body. He throws leg kicks. He has a ton of attritional stuff, all stuff that generally bothers Matt Brown. And the truth is, we're only, what, two and a half, three years removed from him being 30 seconds from winning a decision with Vicente Luque. Um, he gave Leon Edwards absolute hell when they fought. You know, these that those are guys that are on a level that Brown's just never been able to compete with. Now, again, maybe he's regressed a tad, but let's talk about Matt Brown. Is Matt Brown not regressed? You know, he took about four, three or four years off. He comes back, has real trouble early in the Ben Saunders fight, who, a guy who was absolutely shot to bits. He briefly bounces back to life for about 30 seconds against Miguel Baez, uh, where he hurts him briefly before he gets hurt and finished in that fight. You touched on the Condit fight. He got out grappled by Carlos Condit. He looked horrible in that fight. And then his last fight, you know, he fights Diego Lima. He comes in at plus 170. Again, plus 170 against Diego Lima. Now evens against Brian Barberina. But that fight, like, I know the KO was a highlight reel KO. He looked pretty bad before the KO. He lost the first round unanimously. He didn't really seem to know what to do. Lima was just getting off on kicks with no problem. And then he clips Lima and KOs him. And by the way, Lima, one of the chinniest guys to ever do it, you know. And now he's evens against Brian Barberina. And I don't really – like, he turned 40 when he fought Lima. Now we're eight months removed from that. So we have 40-year-old Matt Brown plus eight months taking on 32-year-old Brian Barberina. Uh, one of these guys is historically known for being fragile. You know, Brown's always known for being fragile to the body. He's looked bad since he came back from his break. Taking on Barbarina, who's had a couple, like, not great fights, but, you know, he's mostly done the job and beaten lower-level competition. Is Brown lower level? I mean, I don't know, but I don't think Brown is, like, top 15. He's not even close to top 15, top 20 at this stage of his career. So it's like, for this line to make sense on paper, you have to tell me, is Brown more likely to finish the Barbarina? I cannot say that. That seems crazy to me. You know, I know Barb got finished by Luke and Randy Brown. Dude, Randy Brown would be minus 300 against Matt Brown. Like, this is like, you have to contextualize this. So, like, I have to favor Barbarina to KO him or to be the more likely one to finish here. Since Barbarina is a guy who's going to work the body, and as you touched on, Brown historically very soft to the body. Uh, what about a decision? Can Brown be favored to win a decision here? Uh, I don't think so. Brown, historically super low-volume fighter against Barb, a guy who's historically a super high-volume fighter. I think you have to favor Barb on minutes. I think you have to favor Barbarina on cardio here. You know, can Brown wrestle him? Like you mentioned, I, I really don't think so. Like, you know, even like Witt struggled to control him for long stretches. You know, Colby Covington couldn't control him. You know, Barbarina has always done a very good job of working up off takedowns. We saw it in his last fight. Weeks took him down a few times, but he got up every time without too much problem. I just, you have to think like Barbarina is just done to like have this line be evens, I think. And I just don't think there's a lot of reason to think that. Um, look, Brown's a big enough hitter, he can knock him out. I, I guess he could lull him into a low volume fight where he wins a decision, but I, I have to favor Barbarina just about everywhere in this fight. I, I really don't understand what's going on with this line. So I played Bar big. Um, in terms of props, I think Barb KO plus 300 is pretty good. Like, we know he can hit. Look, the la I, the most similar fight to this in Barbarina's recent history is probably Jake Ellenberger, who we knocked out. You know, a guy who at one time, you know, was pretty good, kind of wore down, and Barb took care of him pretty quickly. He's going to go forward. He's going to throw a lot. He's going to hit him with leg kicks. He's going to work the body. I, I like the Barbarina KO, and I love the Barbarina money line. 
I love it. I love it. I'm just hoping for violence. That's a, the the bet that I ended up making on this side, whether it's Brown or Barbarina. But I'd be a little bit more shocked if it ended up being Brown being the one that put him out here. Uh, yeah, no, I love it. I love it. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. Co-main event slot. No idea why, but is what it is. We got Joanne Wood going up against Alexa Grasso. In terms of odds, we currently have minus 230 on Grasso, plus 190 to return on Joanne Wood. Now, uh, I get it. We can say all we want about the technical benefits that uh, or advantages that Alexa Grasso is going to have in this fight. She's the better fighter. Don't get me wrong. She's great at striking. She's good at combinations. But there's something about Joanne Wood that always makes fights fucking close. Just look at the amount of split decisions that she has on her record. And it's mainly due, in my opinion, to the amount of output she throws out there. I think she throws like six points or lands 6.6 .6 significant strikes per minute compared to the Alexa Grasso side who only lands about four and a half significant strikes per minute. If she goes out there and just puts it on her, and not puts it on her in terms of like just beating her up, but just yeah. puts output out there, this fight's going to be much closer than that minus 230 indicates. Trust me. I love Alexa Grasso. I bet her against my, uh, Macy Barber. I bet her in multiple other spots. But this is one of those fights where Joanne Wood can make it a very greasy split decision. And once it goes to that very close decision, do you want to be that one holding the minus 230 ticket? Because what your success depends on, is Alexa Grasso landing enough of those strikes that pops Joanne Wood's head back? And that's kind of pretty much it, right? She's not an active grappler. She doesn't go out there and grapple too much. She doesn't go out there and clinch too much. So she can't make it look dominant in that fashion if she chooses not to go grappling. I hope for her sake she goes out there and grapples because that would make it look more dominant than it would be to go out there and have a 15-minute kickboxing match with Joanne Wood. But like all the numbers and all that stuff obviously favor Alexa Grasso as well, right? You got 36-year-old Joanne Wood compared to the 28-year-old Alexa Grasso. Uh, but the the statistics, the actual statistics that matter, significant strikes landed, make this fight a lot closer than the odds indicate. Sure, Joanne Wood could also be falling off a cliff. Things could not be looking good for her. You know, um, she got finished in her last fight. Maybe her chin's starting to fall off a cliff. But Alexa Grasso is not a crazy finisher either, right? When's a... I don't even think she has a finish on her record, if I'm not mistaken. Let me just pull that up. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, I'm definitely not in the UFC. Yeah. She definitely doesn't have a finish in the UFC. Okay, she finished Alita Gray eight years ago, 4-1 and one in her sixth ever pro fight. And let's see what Alita Gray has been up to ever since then. Oh, she lost one more fight after that and never fought again. Oh, actually, her three-fight losing streak, not too bad. Jessica Aguilar back in 2014 when she was decent still. Alexa Grasso and then Angela Hill she lost to. All via finish. She lost to all three of those women. And let us let me remind you, Angela Hill finished her. Angela Hill don't finish anybody other than maybe Hannah Cyphers or whatever the fuck it was. But still, um, yeah, I'd be surprised if Grasso gets the finish in this spot. And if it does end up being a 15-minute kickboxing match, this fight's going to be super close. I like the... Uh, well, fight goes to decision is fucking minus 280, so that's too much chalk there. Picking either woman to win by decision is probably the best way to go about it. Grasso by decision is currently minus 115, so you're getting about evens there. Uh, Wood by decision is plus 300. And if you have access to one of those books that have the split slash majority decision win for Wood, you're looking at plus 1400. Worth a little bit of a sprinkle. Trust me, I like it. I love uh, Alexa Grasso as a fighter, but Joanne Wood just has this knack of making fights a lot closer than they should be. Uh, I don't think come the decision that she's going to look minus 230 in this spot. So you could say the value is on Joanne Wood here. But uh, personally, I'm not I'm not betting Joanne Wood here. I don't want to trust her too much. Maybe I'll poke that split slash majority for her if I have access to that on one of my books. Otherwise, I want nothing to do with this one. Now, are you largely seeing it the same way? Otherwise, how do you see yeah, it? Yeah, um, like mostly. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the output. Joanne Wood attempts 19 and a half distance strikes a minute. Like Good that God. is... 
wild, you know? Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, my big problem, like going into tape, I was pretty sure I'd be betting Wood here. Um, and so far I've passed it because, you know, the truth of the matter is I think Grasso's got pretty good footwork. It's like, you know, we saw Wood fight a boxer in I where she was able to just kind of use those front kicks to just keep her from ever really getting into her preferred range. I think Grasso's footwork's probably a little too much for that. And, and like, I do think I favor Wood to land more strikes here, but like if you you know the Joanne Wood style of things, it's all pretty pitter patter, you know, she's not really landing impactful strikes ever. Whereas, you know, Grasso Grasso sits down in her shots, man. She like she that girl can hit. And, and like I kind of think it's a classic fight where it's like it's probably competitive at a very, very high clip, but I also think Grasso wins the decision at a very high clip, even if it's a close decision, you know, I don't think, you know, Wood's almost impossible to just like get out deep, big in front of minutes on, you know, no matter who you are, you know, we saw her keep close with Chikagian, you know, we've seen her do it with everybody, but I do think Grasso is going to land with more impact. And I actually think surprisingly, because I thought coming into the tape, I was like, I think Wood probably could grapple her. I actually kind of think Grasso has more grappling upside here if she actually went to it. You know, I think Grasso is a bit more reliable to get off her back than what is, you know, what we just see, I mean, look, I bet her against Lauren Murphy at evens. And that was so frustrating seeing her get held down for all of round two by Lauren Murphy. So it's like a Grasso takedown could be around here. So it's like on the money line at minus 200, I think I have to favor Grasso. I have to have her about there. It's hard not to just with the grappling dynamic plus the power dynamic. What I do kind of like though, uh, and I didn't see this before I sent you my top three bets because this actually might've been one of them. But bet three sixty five if you have that has wood decision at plus four fifty and that seems Ooh. really crazy to me. Like I I really think the chances of wood finishing Grasso are very low, but I I think she could win a decision at an okay clip. Like certainly not worse than twenty five percent, which would be plus three hundred. Like that's that's a decent amount of meat on the bone there. So I kind of like that wood plus four fifty. But again, I think Grasso is going to win this fight. I wood seems she's thirty six. Her durability is declining, and Grasso is someone who I rate quite highly. So I think she takes care of business here and probably wins the decision. Yeah, uh, the only kind of rebuttal I have to the, the grappling upside that Grasso will have in this fight is she doesn't really go to it, right? Uh, no, she doesn't. She has two takedowns in her eight-fight UFC career to this point. That's point to weight uh, average of uh, takedowns per 15 minutes, 40% takedown accuracy, just because she just doesn't uh, shoot them enough. If she's smart, if they put together a solid game plan, then yeah, taking Joanne Wood seem, to the ground seems to be the best course of action. But will she do it? That's the question. We'll see if that actually pans out. All right. That brings us to our main event of the evening. Shout out to the 160 live viewers that we currently have. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. Uh, and if you haven't already, make sure you guys show my guy Johnson love as well. Follow him on Twitter at MMA Fox, as well as checking out his podcast, which comes out every Wednesday evening, 10 p.m. Eastern, the Club and Sub podcast. Link is in the description below. Great podcast. Make sure you guys go check that out for more MMA betting takes all right main event here we got a heavyweight scrap between curtis blades and chris dacus minus 410 on curtis blades plus 310 the return on chris dacus we, we can keep this one kind of short and sweet I, I don't think we need to get super deep into this one i feel like curtis blades will have almost little to no issue getting this fight to the ground and just doing what he wants to from on top i get it chris dacus is a black belt at bjj 
It's another thing when you have a big, massive motherfucker like Curtis Blades on top of you and trying to either one sweep him or throw up a submission off your back. I'd be very surprised if he's going to be able to do any of those things. Now, I have this like heavyweight gauntlet of heavyweight knockout artists. And at the top, you obviously have Francis Ngannou. Curtis Blades can't pass that test twice. Uh, Curtis, Bl or sorry, Derek Lewis right under that. Curtis Blades can't pass that test. And number three, <sighs> I have Jerzinho Rosenstrike, who Curtis Blades just beat. Back in uh, September of last year, he was able to avoid the big shots, get him to the ground, and do what Curtis Blades fucking does. And then, if anybody cares, the level one of that high heavyweight gauntlet is Walt Harris. And I'm sure we know what Curtis Blades would do with Walt Harris. But Chris Dawkins doesn't have that raw knockout power, right? He has that combination, precision, that speed, all of those things put together <coughs> allow him to knock his opponents out or drop them and follow up with ground and pound after that. I'd be surprised if Curtis Blades gets caught with any of those things. Like, he'd have to be really playing in the kickboxing range, or not even in the kickboxing range. He'd need to be in the pocket for Curtis Dawkins to have much success with landing that knockout blow. I think Blades is developing his striking game. He's getting more comfortable on the feet, throwing his kicks, staying long, and then just waiting for his opportunity to close the distance and get the fight to the ground. Once he gets it to the ground, I don't think he'll have much issues in terms of getting those dominant positions, posturing up, and letting those big shots go. Uh, I think it could look similar to uh, to the finish that he got over Alistair Overeem, where he could even just get strikes off from on top and maybe finish him from guard. Uh, but I think he gets the positions that he wants, to, and I, I think he gets him with, out of there within the first two, maybe three rounds. So uh, Curtis Blades inside the distance, minus one, uh, minus one, where is it at now? Minus 135. I think that's the spot for this one, especially if you don't want to pay that minus 400 on Curtis Blades here. I like uh, uh, Blades, Blades inside the distance. What about yourself? Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'll keep it short. Look, sorry, that's my dog. No worries. Uh, I, I'm right there with you. I'll, I'll keep it short and sweet. I don't think – Jesus, Decker, shut up. Um, I'm glad I don't have to tell Alfred. Shit, I, I don't think uh, Dawkins can survive on bottom, to be honest here. I, I really – you know, initially I was leaning towards Blade's decision. I don't think Docs has much gas, though, if you look at the regional scene. And, you know, even though he is a black belt, I think it's pretty unlikely that Keep going. Don't worry. he can threaten much there. You know, heavyweight black belts tend to be not very flexible. Um, I don't think the Blades is in any danger of getting armbarred. You know, unless Blades loses his mind like he did when he cost me a fuckload of money against Derek yeah. Lewis and decides yeah. to strike with him. And even then, though, like I think Blades he was fine striking. Yeah, it's when yeah. he, it's when he uh, pressured with the, the takedown or like shot that desperation takedown. You should have just I, stayed on the feet, dog. <laughs> that fight was so frustrating. It's like the first yeah. round. I'm like, motherfucker, like, can you just shoot a takedown? And then it's like, oh, Lewis is on one leg. The fight's basically over. Wait, what are you doing, Curtis? Like, you know, <laughs> it was so infuriating. But honestly, like, dude, Blades is a pretty good striker. I don't really think he's in much danger here. Um, I, I like Blades. I like inside the distance. Uh, that's going to be how I'm going to play it. Yeah, like Give me two both. seconds. I'm going to make sure my food didn't just get delivered. That's why my dog's going crazy. Oh, okay. No worries. Go, go for it. Go for it. I'll let you back here. Uh, maybe it was actually Jared Curry as well with his uh, note here saying that uh, Decker, uh, John's dog coming in, just to let you know that the law, uh, that uh, fucking Chris Dock is, is very live in this spot. Uh, maybe that's what it is. We'll see what happens there. All right. Uh, we got one more segment for you guys. Then we'll get up on that here. That is obviously our three best prop bets for this card. Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, Cody is actually out there 
on vacation right now, so he won't be providing his uh, props for this week. But me and John definitely have ours ready to go. So I'll kick things off as normal here. First and foremost, the spot that I like the most on the card, Neil Magny via decision minus 115. Easy spot there. feel like he goes out there and does absolute work against Max Griffin. Gets him out of there pretty easily. Uh, actually, gets him and works him for uh, 15 minutes and uh, wins that fight pretty easily. Next up, I'm going to go Askarov via submission at plus 300. I think he's pretty live here, especially with the amount of grappling upside he'll have, especially considering that a lot of the Kai Kara Francis losses have come via submission, and Askarov was a finishing machine before coming to the UFC. It's just a matter of time before he goes back to that. Uh, again, shout out to the chronic combat. Uh, combat conversation guys from last night uh another example they brought up was islam Mahachev taking a little while to get comfortable in the ufc going to these decisions and then eventually getting those finishes askar askarov could be the same thing here and i think that kai car france is the perfect uh victim for him to go do that against for the first time here and then lastly i'm gonna go barbarina brown fight just go to the decision a little bit chalky here at minus 175 but i think one of these guys get the finish i think it is going to be the barbarina side which john touched on earlier his ko prop is currently sitting around plus 300 don't mind that but i'd rather cover both ends here in case uh the the energy of ohio courses through the veins of Bra uh, matt brown and he goes out there and absolutely knocks out uh brian barbarina but if i doesn't go to decision minus 200 minus 175 i don't mind it if you don't want to pay that type of juice throw it to a parlay it's it's more than worth it as well because i do think that it ends up hitting all right john you're up next brother all right first up we got brian barbarina itd plus 240 i don't think ohio can save matt brown here to be honest um, <laughs> I, 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 I favor barbarina wherever the fight goes here but i, I do think eventually his volume and his body work is probably going to get to brown and he's going to get him out of there kind of think this should be closer to plus 150 so happy to take a stab at plus 240. Next up, I got Mark Jacasey by decision, plus 350. That's a crazy price, in my opinion. Look, the bottom line is this is the steepest test of uh, Borchev's career. Jacasey's going to be able to point fight with him here, I think. And plus, he has the takedowns to break pressure. Um, I trust his cardio more. I trust his wrestling more. Uh, I favor Jacasey to win this fight outright. And I kind of think the station should be closer to plus 185. And last up, we got Chris Gutierrez by decision. Up, oh, similar here. Big step up for Dana here. I think Gutierrez is going to be able to move laterally, get Dana to miss headshots a lot land his kicks and probably going to be a very close fight but ultimately i don't think the errors chances to finish are that high but i think his chances to win a decision are pretty good i like the plus c25 bang there you guys go three best prop bets from me and john uh tomorrow i don't have my guests set at this moment just waiting for a confirmation so just keep your eyes on my twitter account for that saturday uh i'll be likely doing an earlier fight day live chat probably around 11 a.m i'll be gone for the majority of the day missing the event as well so i won't be watching that thing live so make sure you guys check that out john uh, i'll give you the platform here in case there's anything you want to drop on the back end here yeah, I'm pretty excited. Like right now, I just ordered some, or I just got some pink lemonade uh, mm. like flavoring THC delivered. So we're about mm. to just got my sushi delivered too. About to just put it in the water and see see what see where the day takes me right now. Uh, other than that, guys, uh, as you can find me on the Club and Sub podcast, 10 p.m. Eastern Wednesday nights every week uh, on Twitter at MMA Fox. I'm always down to chat with everybody. Hopefully, the picks I gave out this week will do a lot better than what I gave out last week. I apologize sincerely if you tell me on Daniel Hooker. That was awful. I also apologize if you tell me now it's Volkov. But this week, we got Brian Barbarina big, and we got Chris Gutierrez for a decent amount, and maybe we stab Jennifer Maya. We'll see. <laughs>
<laughs> there you guys go. As always, appreciate John doing the show. Shout out to the 150 live viewers. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe on the way out. I heard there's only about 45 likes and there's 150 of you. That math doesn't work out in my head. Make sure you guys rectify that shit ASAP. Hit that like. That's the least you guys can do, especially with us giving you guys two hours of our time on this Thursday afternoon. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Good luck on your bets. And uh, I guess... I don't know what to say. I usually end this with like war or somebody, but we're not really heavy. Barbarina? On you gonna war Barbarina? I, I don't have it. You know what? I'm gonna go to war Neo Magni. I know he's minus okay. 30, but we're going war Neo Magni, especially by decision, because that will send it for the boys. Let's go, Neo Magni. Appreciate you guys. Love you guys. See you guys tomorrow for the ultimate wage show. Peace, guys.